Today's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Tour Books and Nightfire, publishers of Hugo, Nebula, and Locus award-winning author T. Kingfisher, author of Nettle and Bone and What Moves the Dead. Author T. Kingfisher has written adventures for both children and adults. And on a total side note, I read both The Hollow Places and The Twisted Ones last year during the pandemic, which were just awesome. So I'm super, super excited to keep reading her work. This year, Kingfisher has two new adventures coming out. Nettle and Bone is now on sale and is a fairy tale about a princess, a possessed chicken, and a reluctant fairy godmother on a journey to save their kingdom. She also has What Moves the Dead, a reimagining of the fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, which goes on sale this July. Dive into the grim and fantastical worlds that Kingfisher creates now. I will definitely be picking both of these up. For more info, head to tournightfire.com to learn more about both these books and other amazing horror titles. And welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. How you doing? I am feeling awfully smug today. Uh, I'm very excited to bring this back and rub some cow patty in your face because uh, you laughed at me when we went to X. You mocked me when I turned to you and I said, look at these cows. They look like New Zealand cows. <laughs> and you mocked me to my very soul. And then last night, last night on Twitter... I see a post from Jason Lee Howden, who was the director of Deathgasm, a New Zealand film, and he had just seen X, and all his comment was, it was a photo of New Zealand cows saying, the only thing that gave away that this film was shot in New Zealand are the New Zealand cows. Is it just me? And I was like, justice. They just look like dairy cows. They're just black and white cows. It's a very special New Zealand thing. Don't take that from us. Really? Really? Okay. (laughs) Actually, I actually have no idea. But like when I think of Texan cows, I think of cattle and I just have a a brown spotted thing in my brain, I think. And when I think when I see these cows, I'm like, no, that's a kiwi cow. Okay. See, like my granddad, you know, I grew up on a farm. We had dairy cows. Like they were family friend like we they would never have been used for meat and even after they stopped giving milk they just rode out their lives on the farm getting back rubs and brushed and everything and you just outlined the saddest pixar movie i know right just really depressed me it's the cow when the milk stops and now he's gonna just ride out his life he's just riding out his life in the farm hanging out chasing the chickens around but yeah they were black and white they looked very much like that but they were very much like i i don't know my cows but they were dairy cows um so that's just what i assumed most cow i'm sure there's like dairy cattle and beef cattle and ones with big ears. I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. No, but my what? grandparents were dairy farmers too in New Zealand. So that's where I saw. But yeah, I don't know. I just, I laughed because it was like somebody had said exactly word for word what I had said and posted about it. So I was like, <laughs> These yes. cows look like they're kiwis. Kiwi cows. But uh, I believe you also have an update about yeah. a previous film. So I may not know about cows, but I damn sure know about horseshoe crabs now. <laughs> as soon as we posted last episode, I got contacted by somebody who had done their PhD at the same school I did my PhD. PhD at VCU, um, named Anthony Dellinger, who is president of Kepley Biosystems. And not only is he a listener of Colors of the Dark and a huge horror fan, he is also an expert scientist in horseshoe crabs. 
And um, I mean, what is and, the chance? No, and it was absolutely fascinating. So I learned so much about horseshoe crabs, like specifically how important they are. And here's the weird thing that as soon as he had contacted me and started telling me all about how just absolutely invaluable horseshoe crabs are to science, which I'll get into in a second, I actually saw this article go up on one of the sites I frequent, I don't see CNN, NBC News, something like that, about how horseshoe crab blood had been integral in making the COVID vaccine. And because of that, we're now seeing depreciated numbers of horseshoe crabs in the wild um, because you basically have to bleed a horseshoe crab to death to make vaccines. Oh, um, they should use that story before they release that crabs <laughs> movie and be like, the horseshoe crabs are They're pissed. because of the vaccine. I like But it. it's really interesting the way their blood detects bacteria down to, and it is something sick. It is like, um, hold on, I wrote it down because I was so impressed by it. They can react to with bacteria down to the parts per trillion levels, which as he wrote, is like finding one droplet of liquid in an Olympic sized swimming pool. That's how sensitive their blood is. And so they use their blood to test batches of vaccines to see if there might be any bacteria or toxins in them. So basically, if you've ever had a vaccine, any type of hip replacement, any type of major surgery, you have had something that has been made with this horseshoe crab blood. Um, and it's bright blue because their blood, whereas ours is iron-based and red, it's copper-based. And so it's bright fucking blue. And what his company does is study these horseshoe crabs and, and not only just for medical uses, but try to find ways to increase their numbers. Because I learned you can't breed them in captivity. Though they like to, they like to um, have sex on sand and in the wild, and so very much like how you can keep them in captivity and breeding practices and things like that is something you know, kind of finding ways to sustain them with the levels that we need for medical systems. So it was absolutely fascinating. So I was just thrilled that Anthony reached out and he he sent an awesome picture of like, I didn't even post them all. He sent like pictures of the underside of horseshoe crabs. Their um, mouth is like down where our belly button is. If you think about on a horseshoe crab, like I got to watch a video of one eating. It was just really cool. Um, so y'all know my my love of aquatic horror, this type of shit gets me really excited. Um, and so you can check out our Instagram Instagram where I put up um, some of the pictures that Anthony had sent me, but just thank you so much for reaching out and letting us know all about horseshoe crabs, which we were admittedly kind of making fun of. And I only remember dead ones on the beach from my childhood, but these, they're also 40, 400 million years old. Like it's totally a prehistoric animal that is still with us and somehow keeping us alive. Still so, doing it on the beach. Good still, for 4,400 years. <laughs> only fucking on the beach. Go horseshoe crabs. That's, that's some dedication there. Well, we are definitely ready for our agricultural <laughs> podcast between cows and crabs. We got you covered. Um, but I also saw some movies and you saw some TV and we saw. I watched a lot. I read some graphic novels. I we I had a COVID outbreak in my house this week, so with both my kids. So um, what that meant is I couldn't leave for a week. I had to take all my classes online. So I watched a lot of stuff. Well, I did some. Okay, I'll start with a couple. I did a couple interesting doubles, but one was uh, Netflix has a brand new film called Choose or Die. I almost watched this. I'm glad you did. Yeah, I would have been curious to hear what you think. So this is no brain scan, people. You brain scan heads out there, and I know you're out there because I'm one. Um, this this movie is definitely in that. It's trying to be in that vein for sure. So it's about uh, somebody finds they're, – they're both. I think they're both programmers, um, this girl and the guy, and one guy's building his own game. 
uh, and she finds like a lost survival uh, 80s horror game that you plug in, kind of kind of like Jackson Stewart's movie, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Is it um, like a VCR or is it like a CD-ROM? I think it's a tape. Uh, I believe it's a tape that you listen to and then you play along with it. But at the start of it, they you have to call a phone number. It's kind of like nine. It reminded me of nine seven six evil in that part because, which is funny because Robert England's actually the voice in this. He's oh, wow. the voice on the machine that you call to kind of challenge the game. But it's a it's an eighty survival kind of horror game. And as soon as they do it, it's called you know it's a choose or die kind of game. And uh, it open it unleashes a curse on people. Now there's some there's like two or three really good sequences in this, and everything in between is really really flat and and like it's really hard to get. In. It was a real bummer in a way because it has a couple sequences that are actually really cool. So uh, basically, she's in this a good example. She you know has started opened the stuff, has logged into this game. I kind of did all these kind of app type movies, like even though this is an old app. Um, she is in a cafe in a diner and there's no one else there and the waitress you know pours her coffee and she pushes the button it says choose or die and then it it's like a computer game so when you're finally playing it you're on your computer and mm-hmm. it will type in you can do this or you can do that you must choose or die so it'll say make the make the waitress eat glass or do this or die and so she, you suddenly you look up and the waitress is eating shattered glass and it's really quite that's probably one of the most disturbing interesting sequences and the girl when she resists something terrible even worse happens Mm -hmm. and it keeps taking you to the next level if you uh satisfy and don't die and obviously somebody else is going to be punished for it so the concept is really cool i love these kind of concepts i always find these kind of movies even ones that don't work at least they can be kind of compelling yeah but the characters are just well not even the character i just like everything about the character and the performances of the lead was just really flat, unfortunately. Um, I think it was shot in England, even though it's kind of positing like it's an American film. It never felt, I'm pretty sure it was British. Um, and it has a couple, like I said, a couple really cool things that, you know, they start tracking, like, where is this device from? Where is the where's the original game take place? This phone, Where does this phone number of the Robert England voice take us to? So I won't ruin it for people. This one hit Netflix. Like I said, it's kind of fun, but ultimately didn't deliver. But I'm going to do two here just because the other one I saw was mostly maligned from what I heard, and I actually really liked it. So it led me, choose or die, my lack of excitement there, that's the newer one, to last year's Countdown, um, which was also on Netflix. And I actually thought it was really fun. Like, like equally high concept, uh, you know. In this case, a bunch of friends are at a party at this opening scene, and they're like, oh, there's a new app called Countdown, and you can learn the date, exact date and time of your death. And they all download it, and then, of course... Uh, you violate the terms and um, policies uh, and you will uh, die uh, potentially even earlier. And it's, you know, so it starts with them something terrible happens in the op- cold open. And then it leads us to the main character who's a nurse. And, you know, she at some point ends up downloading this with other coworkers and we start to see how this actually works. And I, I just, even though it's not, this isn't some brain, you know, it's not, it's not elevated, smart, anything kind of, you know, horror. I thought it was really fun. And so it kind of satisfied for me the feeling I was going for, kind of like that one I talked about a couple months ago, Polaroid, again, mm-hmm. similar, I similar like Polaroid. Yeah, they're all, they're all pretty similar, the setup. It's obviously teen slasher, but game, gamified. And that's always kind of a bit more fun, I think. Have you seen 2016's Nerve? That oh, yeah. is no, this no, I like done that. really not, well. Yeah, except that's not really horror, but but it's no. fun. It's a lot yeah. of fun. That one's a lot um, of fun. And I will say there was one that I saw at Fantasia. Oh, gosh. It's probably been five years. It was pre-pandemic, which feels like eons ago at this point, yeah. called Game of Death, 
that I remember not liking where it went in the third act, but I loved the first two where it was a group of kids at like a house in Palm Springs for the weekend, find this old game. And it's a similar concept where they have to kill someone every 30 minutes or one of them dies. Oh, and they I don't saw realize that. No, I saw it at a film festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like much more indie and like splattery in yeah. a way. Like, yeah, because they explode. I mean, yeah, like that, they explode. They explode. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think I saw that at Knoxville actually back in the day. It, and it, it was like, it was fun. It wasn't my bag, but it was fun. Like I could, I kind of enjoyed it, you know? I love game movies, like across yeah. the board. I tend, my favorite ones, as I've discussed, are where it's like, you know, six people shoved in a room. Why are you here? You have 50 minutes to find out before I shoot one of you. I love those movies. Oh, yeah, there's one One okay. I'll get to in a, a bit that had you written all over it that I'll talk about in a second. Uh, but anyway, Countdown. I, I, did countdown. You countdown? Did you I didn't. It? I had this on my list. Yeah, and I, think I heard good it. things. My students like this one. Yeah, it, uh, look, I'm, when I talk about these movies, they're not the ones that are naturally made for me. They're not my demographic age-wise either. But, but I find them fascinating to see how people pull them off. And I just thought mm-hmm. this one was actually, they're both on Netflix, so check them both. I think they're both worth watching, but I, I found Countdown to be a lot more satisfying because the actual, the kind of specter of death that's actually coming for them when they violate the terms of the agreement, which means if you get an exact date and time of your death, right, which is what mm-hmm. the app does, and you use the information of that to try to circumvent your death, a la Final Destination, uh, now this other thing comes for you. Not your natural death, oh. but this like demon-looking thing. And that's why I thought it was really cool. Um, so, I, you know, it's kind of goofy and fun. But those were my first two. That was my Netflix double app game type things. Well, I will dive into some television just because I watched a lot of television this week, um, just because there was a lot releasing and I was super excited to kind of, I just kept finding new shows every couple of days. Um, I'll start with Moon Knight, which I'll only mention briefly because not technically horror, but it definitely goes there. Moon Knight, this is one of the new Marvel projects on Disney+. Plus. It is fun, weird, trippy. It has monsters in it and just kind of reinforcing fun, weird, trippy with monsters in it. Um, Several of the episodes are directed by Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson, who we know from um, Endless and Resolution and Synchronic and just amazing horror directors across the board. Um, So this, uh, you can immediately see them all over these episodes. It, It just reads them because they are so trippy and weird and it's jumping times but they're happening within people's heads and alternate personalities it's just an absolute blast and i'll call it horror adjacent because it definitely does push it there with some of the monsters and setups and psychological horror aspects of it i actually watched the first two and liked it and then i for, like when it first hit and then mm-hmm. i haven't gone back because i i can some of these shows i can't tell when they're dropping you know, like some of them are coming two times a week or two episodes are dry. You know, I know. It's so confusing. And I'm going to talk about that because that was kind of one of my my issues this week. Um, I will say, I think Moon Knight, I think I'm on three or four. Okay. Um, I just watched The Egyptian Heart Monster. That okay. I think that's episode three. Um, but yeah, just, I know that Aaron and Justin did episode two and then a couple other ones coming later cool. on in the season. Um, but I'm actually going to dive in with one that hasn't gone full horror yet, but it is definitely getting there. And that is Outer Range on Amazon Prime. Um, I have now watched three episodes of this. Um, it is going to be, they, they did a premiere and four, then yeah. they did the first one. Three? Did I? Yeah, it's three. Um, because they did a premiere and then they did the first one and then they did a 
third one. But yeah, it gets really confusing. I'm I can't remember if they dropped two more of just one. You might be right. But either way, I've seen whatever's out because it's yeah. really interesting. Like, I'm so like, what's going to happen? <laughs> I'm really enjoying this one. And like I said, it has not gone full horror yet. So I, I'm assuming it gets there just because it does have so many kind of notes. And it's definitely sci-fi, if nothing else. Um, but it really does have a lot of horror notes to it. This is... I'll call it a Western horror science fiction thriller right now. It is um, about Josh Brolin, who is an older rancher who lives in, I think it's Utah. um, Or Wyoming. Wyoming. It's Wyoming. Wyoming. Yeah, I think it is. Um, He lives, uh, we'll say somewhere prairie state um, with his his two sons, one of their daughters and um, his granddaughter and his wife. And they are in a land dispute with one of the ranchers who lives next door. And this is really wealthy. Yeah. And kind of seems a little evil and crazy. His kids are kind of douchey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they're in a land dispute. And what you find out within literally like the first 10 minutes of the episode, Josh Brolin is walking along his land, the disputed part of his land, which is the West Pasture. And all of a sudden he happens upon this massive, massive hole in the ground. But it's not like a hole in the ground that goes into the ground. It's like a dimensional vortex that has opened up in his land. And he starts throwing things in there, um, for lack of a better way of putting it. And he is trying to keep it from other people in the town while he tries to figure out what it is. At the same time, this weird hippie girl played by Imogene Poots shows up from and the is like, room, if anyone yeah. doesn't remember, she's, awesome. she's, she's awesome in the yeah. show. She shows up and she's like, I do not know why, but I am totally drawn to your land and I feel like I need to be here. I will pay you however much you want if you just let me camp on your land. And she finds it, but you get feelings that she's like otherworldly, that she might know more about what's going on than she's putting forth. And so right now, it really has not revealed much except for kind of a couple of secrets of the whole and that the whole land seems to be kind of affected by it. And there's a body, um, like in the first episode, which I think is important because it kind yes. of pulls in the noir element a little bit, which is like what a couple of the kids. So there's a missing daughter, his Josh Brolin's daughter-in-law has been missing from when you open the series and the whole family yeah. grieving because of it. No one knows where she is. Obviously, we can now guess that the whole will have something to do with it at some point but but that's what you're kind of open it with and one of the two of the the sons get in an altercation with somebody and there's an accident so because the first episode starts off almost with like a body disposal like a genre, yeah and then it ends up being way more cosmic and i'd say you understand less and less each episode which in, a, in an interesting way that i'm like you know obviously it's the kind of show that could shit the bed at the ed- end but if it doesn't it's going to be really awesome because it's yeah. so interesting Right now, I looked forward to last Friday when I knew a new episode was coming yeah. because I was so engaged and into it. I love the setting. I love Josh Brolin. Um, and it, he is just doing a hell of a job. I also really love Noah Reed. He's the Tillerson son who sings all the time, who keeps singing yeah, Angel of the Morning. Yeah, I know him from Schitt's Creek, and this is such a different role, but I love him in this. No, pretty um, much every uh, the, the main guy who got in the fist fight, that is Bill Pullman's son, mm-hmm. Lewis Pullman. He's really good. Like, I can tell he's going to be, I think he's actually cast in the New Salem's lot when they do it. Um, and then the other brother is from um, uh, the Ozarks, and he's he's a great, like, it's just it's a really well cast show. So this was the one that my, my, you know, when my longest um, LA first, one of the first people I met out here was um, Jake Cattell is the DP on a whole handful of these episodes and oh, wow. Simons directs a few. So it has multiple, you know, like all shows, it has maybe three DPs on, I think each one does three or four mm-hmm. episodes, but um, 
so it's really cool to see i you know what he was working on all that time and it looks worth it to me yeah know? it's gorgeous so that is outer range which is doing a slow release on amazon prime right now which brings me to a whole nother discussion that like we had this move okay so we were watching terrestrial shows where we get this yeah. kind of like what I've always heard called day and date release of okay. Friday at eight o'clock tune in when this thing streets. And then we move to VOD and everybody pushes away from it of we're going to dump all of stranger things at one time, watch it as you want, or we're going to dump all of tiger King at this one time, watch it whenever you want. And now the VOD platforms are pushing back to this day and date release of, you know, tune in Friday at eight o'clock as we drop a new episode of outer range. I do not get it. I do not know what we're aiming for here. Um, but that's going to be kind of a theme of all the TV shows well, we talk if, about tonight. And, and all of them are a little different. And like, I can't talk about the the business side of it is obviously mm-hmm. what's, what's motivating them as the uh, ingester, right? Uh, I, I must say some shows, like I think Twin Peaks, The Return, the one one episode a week really worked for that show because it forced everyone to talk about it and get all like confused and like you know it became water cooler moment again. Whereas if they had dumped that show, it, the interest in that show would have been so brief. Um, and so it's kind of like out of range. I kind of wish it would be maybe two every week or something. So because it's one is almost not enough to keep the mystery yeah, in I your need brain. More. Yeah, but if they did dump it all, I would just probably sit there and watch it all. So, but but some shows, I, I I agree, it's so hard. You know, some shows, I feel like I feel like they all kind of do need a slightly different release model. But yeah, I and, guess um, their goal is to keep you around, right? And so. I think that that might be, you know, that the the word of mouth is probably why they're doing this. Because if we look at something like another show that we loved this year on Netflix, Archive eighty one, um, and with Archive eighty one, they dumped the whole thing. Every horror fan spent an entire weekend just watching yeah. that show. It was hot for a week, and then now I haven't heard anything about it. And You're I- right because it got so like on the like Severance is the best example of anything I've seen this <laughs> like recently. Like where it's just each episode left you really hanging. Like you were hanging out for that last episode. I have a theory on yeah. Severance. Okay, I will um, have to hear that after. But or is okay. it to do with the plot or not? Or it is to do with, I can talk, not not a theory of like what's going on, but oh, a theory oh. of why Severance worked because you said, uh-huh. I've been thinking about this so bad. Like what was it about Severance that made me at the end of each episode, literally tweeting my anger that I have to wait another goddamn week for an episode. And I realized that it is anti-lifetime model. That usually what you do is that you you end an episode or you end like cut to commercial break right before something happens. Like a person is about to die. A person is about to fall off a cliff. And what Severance does is it goes till that action has just happened and then stops. So it literally right. pushes it just a 30 seconds further than the normal commercial break or end would be where you're like, is she going to push the button in this one? She pushes the button and then it cuts. So we don't know. You're you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about where where it cuts. And I think, and I think the last couple episodes, the difference in that show and some other shows is like, it ends up getting you emotionally by the end. And it Mm -hmm. doesn't all the way through because it's kind of a cold, like a lot of science fiction. But in those last two or three, it finds that emotional thing that will make you really care about what you're going to be watching. 
and it's brilliant how they do it i think like yeah. it's such a cool reveal uh and then you're just in and it's you know and yellow jackets is another one that i felt like did stuff like that it's yeah no, it's interesting that is interesting but yeah tv yeah tv model is just so different and it's i, I still don't developing even obviously like there's mm-hmm. still because now so much of our entertainment is going directly to tv and a lot of what seems like a lot of movies that could have been movies are now being turned into shows i feel like they're finding what the break points are now you know That's been an interesting thing in, you know, how much I love my documentaries that now, like a lot of times I'll be watching one of these like five part series on Netflix and I'm immediately like, oh, this could have been a movie. Why is it five episodes? Um, But thus I digress. It's to keep you there. That was um, a very long winded sidebar with a lot of um, kind of roots going off. Uh, talk about Outer Range, which is currently on Amazon Prime, um, and it is doing a weekly streaming. So there's either three or four episodes available, but both Elric and I really dug this one. Do you want me to? Okay, I'll jump in with a couple on Shutter. Yeah, and we'll take keep the it, TV take going. it. Um, actually, I start two on Shutter. Um, one I like more than the other. Okay, so the first one is that they mentioned it when they Shutter. We had a really good uh, interview with the Shutter boys um last couple weeks ago and it was mm-hmm. a very i really actually learned a lot about their model um and this one is an original that just came out called night's end mm-hmm. um and it is director jennifer reader it's made for shutter it's again i think uh if i'd seen this a year ago i probably would have been more into it but i am definitely struggling with movies that were very clearly made when no one could leave their houses uh this one is about a shut-in it's a guy who uh is a, a shut-in you don't really know what's happened in his life um, but he's obviously a bit odd and he started to make like, you know, uh, self-help or like, I'll teach you how to best mow your lawn kind of videos to see if he can make some money. Uh, mm-hmm. And the only people he really talks to outside of, you know, he's by himself in this ha- apartment. He will talk to his ex-wife, who is Michael Shannon's real wife in real life. And Michael, so Michael Shannon suddenly in this in a cameo because clearly the pandemic was on and he's in the house. So might as well be in, in the movie, but that's cool. It's Michael Shannon. Um, and, uh, and a friend of his who gives him advice. And anyway, at one point he's just making these kind of crappy videos and he sees this dead bird behind him. He likes to do like, um, he likes to, is it called embalming or whatever, you know, with the, with the, no, what's the word for animals that you, is that embalming? Uh, that would be taxidermy. Taxidermy, yes, my brain. Uh, embalming a human body. Uh, taxidermy, one of these birds falls off and you start. To, he finds out that this place has actually a very dark, sordid history. So that might be ghosts. And he's like, well, I can exploit that and I'll start making ghost videos instead. So he starts filming himself trying to uh, get into that uh, place where you get just tons and tons of hits, which is interesting. Um, and some spooky stuff does happen. And it definitely has its moments. It builds to a really big climax that... Um, when it finally got there, it didn't completely work for me, but mm-hmm. it's my problem with it is it's like, a, if this was just a 20 minute movie, it would be freaking great. It would be the short film you see at a festival that just blows the doors off. And then at 88, 80 minutes, I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if I have much I have left in me to watch people at their computer. I just, I just don't know if now's the time for me to be watching movies like that. So, um, that's where I kind of, uh, end on it. But I think some people will really take to it because it has got a pretty bonkers, finale like it goes all the way with a with a concept by the end which is cool you know um just wasn't really for me um but the other one is the one that has you written all over and i'm very curious i mean you might not love it but you'll certainly find it interesting so this is called the seller this was i've been seeing ads for this like it keeps popping up as like a recommendation Mm -hmm. yeah it's brand new it came it just came out last week uh alicia uh cuthbert uh who may or may not come up again later in the episode um uh she is a i think it's irish um even though it's you wouldn't necessarily know it character wise but i think the house is in ireland so there's a big old house big mysterious house that some for some reason they're getting a family's getting a great deal on 
and they work in like the world of influencing and Instagram kind of things and just that kind of that's the world. Uh, but they're not like annoying influencers themselves. They are people who work behind the scenes, you know, in boardrooms, making mm-hmm. up making app decisions and stuff. Um, and they have a teenage daughter and a younger son, and uh, they move into this old mansion. And they the daughter goes into this in, into the cellar. And at one point, the door closes on her own and she can't get out. There's kind of a scary beat. And later on, it happens again. Something happens, triggers an old record player, turns uh, like a gramophone, comes on by itself, plays this audio track of this guy talking. Uh, and then she goes into the cellar and she goes down one step. She counts the steps like 10, 9, 8, 7. And then the num- even though there's only 10 steps, the number and the voice keeps going and going and going forever. And then the person's gone. They're no longer in the house and you don't know where they've gone. They've disappeared from this, this, the sphere. And um, so that basically opens with the daughter going missing and they have no clue where she is. They don't think she's in the closet, the cellar, no idea at all. And they start to unlock. This is where it gets, becomes a kind of you thing where you, there's symbols all over different parts of the different doors. There's some academic symbols uh, on the different um, s- steps in the basement. There is a painting of the guy who used to own it, who was this weird academic that they keep talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And there's all these weird old texts. There's hidden rooms. There's a parallel dimension. Um, it just like, it, it, it screams uh, Becca-ology. Wow. Um, in many okay. ways. But, where, where I, if I, to sell it to the non uh, people who maybe that, that is less exciting to them for people like me, it basically has a very strong the beyond vibe to certain things that happen once you're in the cellar. And there's a couple images where you're like, oh, wow, that's coming right from the beyond. So it's kind of, kind of cool. So it, whilst it does, it's not a home run to me, it's really solid and has some really interesting moments in it. And I think just the kind of weird academic mystery you'd probably dig. I'm going to so, watch this one tonight. Yeah, it, I think it's a good night one for you that you'd probably just enjoy because it, it's not, you know, it's not as smart as, as it could be, but it's also not dumb. It's, you know, it's kind of fun in that way. So um, so that is The Cellar on The Shutter. Well, I'm going into another TV show, and this one is The Baby on HBO Max. I saw you post about this. haven't even heard of this. I had not even heard about this either. On Sunday night, I logged in to watch um, the John Oliver show this week, Uh tomorrow, tonight, last week, Uh tonight, or something, whatever it is. I watch it every Sunday night. And it wasn't posted yet, but then it came up as a recommendation of, you may also like the baby and the image was this little baby crawling around with like a demon witchy looking shadow behind it and i was like okay hello what are you i click on it and the trailer is hilarious and looks exactly like something i would like this is straight up like british horror comedy (laughs) um so immediately i was like british horror comedy i am so in so the only two episodes are available right now hbo is also doing a tiered release with this one um, it's only eight episodes, so it's not like a, a repeating season. This is just an eight episode series, mm-hmm. um, and there's nothing past that. But um, you've got two episodes up right now. The whole setup is that this um, woman is just the ultimate bachelorette. She has no interest in being in a relationship, and she definitely does not want kids. She's just kind of confirmed that she never wants kids. Um, And all of her friends are having babies and getting pregnant, and she's just really overwhelmed because all of her friends who have been friends with her forever, she's 38 now, they're all like, you know, going baby crazy and having showers for each other. And she is just completely sick of it and overwhelmed and trying to figure out what the hell is wrong with her. She's kind of a hot mess in general with her life and disorganized. She decides to get away for the weekend. She rents an Airbnb 
And one night she is standing outside smoking a cigarette and literally this baby falls off a cliff above her into her arms. Now, now that takes me back to the cold open. This had a crazy cold open where you see this woman standing on a cliff holding a baby Mm. and the cops approach her and she puts down the baby and then runs off the cliff. And then literally the baby just kind of follows her and crawls over the cliff. And so then you catch up and she realizes that she has caught the baby. At this point, she's holding a baby and she calls the cops and the cops come and they're like, well, there's a dead woman outside. Do you know anything about her? And she's like, nope, but I got this baby. Hmm. And they're like, okay, well, cool. We'll, you know, we'll take it from here. Somehow the cops take the baby and the cops wind up dead. And then she ends up back with the baby as she finds the two dead cops. And then it goes from there and it just keeps on going with the next couple of days where whenever she gives the baby to anybody, the baby, you never see it, but the people wind up dead. Hmm. And so you get this, but the baby does nothing to her. Like it, it just wants to be around her and hang out and it's a really cute baby and it's all giggly and happy. And so police are getting really interested in her because over the course of like 48 hours, she has been a part of four different murders. Um, And it's all linking back to this baby that just seems to be kind of following her around. Like no matter what she does, who she gives it to, they wind up dead. And then somehow through circumstances, the baby will return to her. Hmm. And she has no idea what's going on. And that's kind of the the first two episodes. So you don't really know too much of what's going on yet, except that you get the idea that this baby is fucking evil, but that it wants to be with her. But it sounds kind of omen-ish. It's not. It's a horror comedy. It's hilarious. Um, it's very much like a comedy about her life and mannerisms and just everything. And so it's really well executed. I had a lot of fun with the first two episodes. Hmm. Um, I wish they had kind of given more because this is one because they're short i feel like they're only 30 minutes long it feels very kind of sitcomy length this is one i probably would have binged had they let me mm-hmm. um and i get that you know probably trying to build word of mouth but this one was like a breath of fresh air where it was just fun and you know kind of just uh, horrible things happening but it was very much like a, a british horror comedy humor so i would have watched probably all eight episodes in one night had i been given the chance mm. but um this is the baby currently on hbo max wow i can't believe there's a show like that that we've never even heard of or seen posters for it just shows how much content is out there literally just kind of oh the show i'm not what i wanted to watch isn't here wait what's this thing it just recommended and had the show i wanted to watch been there i would have never clicked it so yeah and to note my last comment i hate the term content but when it's treated when shows are treated like that that's how i view (laughs) i view it as content because it's Mm -hmm. they've just filled a space and no one's aware it exists you know (laughs) so this one had no marketing i got no press on it and i mean i get you know 30 different horror press releases a day from all of the different studios and outfits and i've heard nothing about this um so yeah but it it was definitely worth checking out especially if you do dig your kind of um dark horror comedies this definitely is one of them Uh, i got one more new film um that people some people it's called the northman by roger robert eggers vaguely familiar with it um i know a lot of people probably hanging out for this one uh 90 million dollar epic by Robert Eggers. Uh, <laughs> Never get made again. <laughs> imagine if Lighthouse had been made for ninety million. How much it would have made? Uh, yes, this will not make. Gets this. This movie will not make a lot of money back. It'll probably. I mean, I'm, if I was guessing, maybe it'll make half eventually. I don't know, but it won't be even close. Uh, it is a great 
try out for whatever he wants to do next. Like if people don't hold that against him and, you know, uh, obviously he's somebody we hope to protect from Marvel and companies like that. I would, you know, it'd be very sad for me to just see him making the next Thor because obviously he could do that, but it would be a real loss to the kind of stuff he does. Um, this is a, this is a real interesting one. What's interesting about it is, is it's totally still him, mm-hmm. but it never is slow which is not like his other films and it's ne- it's it's still idiosyncratic for sure but it never feels has some weird moments kind of reminded me weirdly enough of the fountain more than any other movie then no, no, the fountain is really obscure obviously by Darren Aronofsky and ha- but there are moments in this that remind me of that but because this is a very simple revenge tale it's very easy mm-hmm. it's a very easy movie to watch it's as easiest movie to just sit there and go oh this is fun but in the same token I, for me personally it's the least of the three, like to me, the witch is like a masterpiece. The lighthouse yeah. is just a total oddity that is really interesting. And probably ten years from now, I'm going to rewatch and love it. Um, this one is more like exa- it feels like I'm getting exactly what I'm seeing. But it is, you know, it's, the direction's great, the details great, the performances are awesome. It's really bloody, it's intense, um, it, it's it's fun. Weirdly enough, and I wouldn't say his other films are necessarily fun. It's actually quite fun in the way the story unfolds. Um, but it also disappeared quicker from my taste buds if you know what i mean when i walked mm-hmm. out which which and the pacing it really you feel it differently than his other other films but yeah i think mean everyone who listens to a show like this should go check this movie out it's one that i would love for it to do well enough to not uh damn the director for sure and people will be watching it for the next 30 years that's the cool thing about movies like this because they're kind of timeless um all his all his films have that quality where they're never gonna feel dated you know what i mean because he makes them out of time is this something like The Witch or The Lighthouse where I will be kind of thinking about it the next day? Like, does it have that kind of haunting resonation? I mean, for me, that's what I'm, I think that's ultimately what I'm kind of saying in a way is that it has less of it than the others, but the but it's a clear trade-off with the budget mm-hmm. to make something more accessible and bigger and more action-y. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have, it has obviously metaphysical ideas. It has either ideas about gods, uh, Valhalla, you know, it's obviously pretty interesting. But I think it's because the kernel of the lighthouse, I couldn't tell you. If you ask me right now, hey, what's the kernel? I'd be like, I can't really remember besides the two guys. I know they're back and forth and there's weird, you know, weird mermaid stuff going on. But I couldn't tell you like, what is the kernel? Whereas this is like, no, he needs to avenge his, he needs to avenge his father, uh, save his mother and kill the bad guy. That And he keeps saying this throughout the trailer and to himself. And that is the core of the film. But um, how they get there, there has some good twists. I mean, Nicole Kidman's really great. Um, obviously, Stone, uh, you know, Stone Skarsgård, his son Alexander Skarsgård is really just transformative in this. Um, you get some Ethan Hawke again. You were talking about Moon Knight earlier. Ethan Hawke's at the start of this. Anna Taylor-Joy, uh, Joy, uh, William Defoe obviously pops up again. Uh, Bjork has a, a part where I had to find out about, after I saw the movie, I didn't spot it. But it's a very critical role, but I just didn't realize it was Bjork, so it was really cool. So it's got a lot of really cool like some people are calling this utterly his masterpiece. So and I think that's totally fair. I think this one's gonna be more like it's not what I'm saying is not objective, it's completely subjective. It's more like, no, objectively, this is a really impressive feat. Subjectively, maybe it interests me a little less than something mm-hmm. like The Lighthouse, which maybe I enjoyed in the theater less, The Lighthouse, but I think about it all the time because it's so out there and quirky and odd. This isn't yeah. really odd. I don't think this is odd. It's not, it hasn't lost all its edges, of course, because he's, you know, he's a single-minded director in that way. Um, and so it's really impressive. Look, I hope, I hope everyone goes to it. I hope people love it. You know, for me, it's, it's still really solid. And it has some horror beats. It definitely has a lot of intensity and violence, um, but more of an action revenge film. But, you know, it would be very interesting to see if he had the studio, if he could really go even bigger 
what he could do, but maybe that'd be too risky, you know, because he I don't like, know. 90 yeah. million is so huge. I for, mean, for, for that kind of, yeah, filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, and, um, and he only wants to make period things. Like he said, he never wants to make a contemporary film ever. He has no interest in a movie set in contemporary world. So that's interesting. And he wanted to make Nosferatu next, but now it sounds like it won't happen. Um, I'm not sure if it's related to this or just in general. So, but yeah, no, definitely everyone should check it out. And I, I know from Letterboxd that most of the people I follow or who follow me, most of them are giving this like four and a half stars. So most people are loving it, which is great. And I really, really like it. So that's, I might be just a step down from loving it, but um, it's very interesting to me. It couldn't okay. compare to the Nick Cage movie I saw earlier in the week, which is definitely a more average movie, but I lo- I couldn't have loved a movie more. Because That's the unbearable weight uh, of talent. It, it's like somebody goes, hey, I'm going to make a movie for Elric Kane and Patrick Bromley. Um, is that okay? And we're like, yeah, that's okay. Just make a film there for the two, the Nick Cage fans. Uh, it's just so sweet. It's like bromance. It's fucking, the guy from Mandalorian is as good as Nick Cage. Is. Pedro Pascal, he is so funny and so kind of sweet. He's like the number mm-hmm. one fan. It's not a horror film anyway, but I've been catching up on new releases this week because my work schedule is a little different and it's been that movie just made me smile from start to end so oh my gosh i want to see that one. it's really sweet um so i'm moving on to yet another tv show that i watched this week and this one was a full dump it came to amazon prime <laughs> that just sounded um, awful it's a full dump, dump. No, and, and and i don't mean that to be derogatory because i'm actually really liking it like yeah. this is possibly my fave out of all of the ones that i watched this week Um, or at least it's the one that I'm kind of most into, but this one, it was on epics. It premiered in on epics in February, and then they just dumped the entire first season in one lump, um, to Amazon prime. So all the episodes are up and this is from, yeah, no, I wanted to see this, but I couldn't because it was on epics. It's, uh, Henry Perrineau, right? Uh, yes. Harold Harold Perrineau from Lost. Yeah. I was very curious about it. Yeah. And Oz and, um, Mm -hmm. he, he went to the college in my hometown. Um, so yeah, but he, this just got renewed for a second season, just like last week. So as soon as I had read that it got renewed, I was immediately like, Oh, well, cool. That sounds really badass. I want to watch it. And I had seen a lot of people posting on Twitter about how goddamn scary this, this Hmm. show was. And so I, I, my interest was definitely piqued. Um, this is from the Russo brothers who obviously have like some cool sci-fi horror street cred. Um, this is about a town that traps people in literally like you will be driving down the street. You will see a tree that goes across the entire road. You will turn around thinking that you have to go back in the other direction and it will push you into this town. And no matter which way you try to go, you will just go in a loop and always end up back in this town. And so the town is a collection of people from all different time periods who don't know how they got there. They can remember their lives before they just, there's no way out of the town. Um, And so some people have been there for decades and other people have only been there for months. Um, But the town is basically at the mercy of supplies that come to them. Like an ambulance ends up there. And so suddenly they have medical supplies for a little bit. Or oh, That's one, actually quite cool. That's a cool yeah. twist to that. Um, like, you know, an RV drives into the town and gets stuck there and they had a lot of food with them. So suddenly there's food. Plus they've learned to be sustainable. They've learned how to harvest trees from the forest to repair the houses because there are existing structures that were in this town when they arrived. But they can't leave. And so it is just this grouping of people who are stuck there. Harold Pirnow plays um, the sheriff um, who basically is trying to keep people 
from the monsters, which gets you to the horror part of the show. As if the town that won't let you leave is not scary enough. Every night at sundown, these monsters come out of the forest. But they're not monsters like we think monsters. They look like people, except they're always smiling. And if they can come in contact with you, they will literally torture you for hours until you die. Like as a group, they will gather around and do this, but they look like humans. And the whole thing is that they try to mess with you psychologically. So it, the cold open, it's got this amazingly sick cold open where you see everybody leaving the streets at like five o'clock on the dot and they all go inside and it's all this like, get inside. It's five o'clock. The sun's going down. They all get inside and you see this little girl laying in her bed and there's a knock on the window and it's her grandma and her grandma who's been dead um, for years is like, let me inside. Just let me inside. And she opens up her window and boom, it's it's there. And then they show the aftermath. These monsters fuck your shit up. Um, and you find out that they they usually will torture you for hours before they'll actually kill you. But they rip your, your heart out. They rip your guts out like it is intensely gory. Um, but again, they just look like people. And so it's this highly psychological coercion to try to get people to let them inside their houses. They can go anywhere they want, but the town has figured out this particular type of talisman that if they put it in the doorways, the monsters can't get in unless they ask permission. Um, unless so they kind are kind of like vampires, in. a version of a vampire, like Salem's Lot. A kind of, of like it, yeah. If they look like people, and so, and they're only at night, and they're all very smiley, and so far they're all dressed like people from the 1950s, which is even creepier. How far um, are you into it? I'm on three episodes. Okay, and it I'm is wild. The first three episodes, you know, the monsters are definitely a big part of it. It's a the focus of it is a family in an RV C class, just like I own, just a couple of years older than the model I have. Um, gets stuck by the tree in the road, turns around, and ends up um, going in a loop around the town and crashes. And so then the town goes to rescue them, but it's right as the sun's going down. So they're having to explain, like, get the hell out. I'm sorry, your leg's broken. We have to go right now. You know, we have to go. And they don't know what's going on. But then you see the monsters come out and it gets fucking horrific. Like this one has really good scares, at least in the first three episodes. There were so many just absolutely horrifying moments. Um, Everybody there doesn't know why they're there. They're all from different walks of life. Um, and, and kind of choose to ride out their time there in different ways. Some people are just pissed off. Some become effective members of the community. Some, you know, are constantly trying to find ways out of the town. So, so far I'm on, uh, I will be watching the third, uh, fourth episode tonight. Cause I'm totally hooked and can't wait to watch more. And I just, I love, I have no idea where this is going, but I love the world it has set up so far. Yeah. I might watch one tonight now that I know it's there. Cause I didn't have epics and I, I, th- I definitely noticed it was on Amazon, but I assumed it was like the pilot or something. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize they're all that's, that's cool. Um, we'll, we'll just quickly every week that we do the show, as you all know, I always like to introduce you to cool graphic novels and that's just what I do every week. <laughs> is like- it now? I no, I do, and I read great stuff, and then I recommend. Sometimes Becca rips me off. That's but, all. Um, it's just me reading whatever you. But I, I am the one that people usually come to for graphic novels. So uh, I'm reading one <laughs> that I came up with out of the ether. 
it's amazing that I came up with this one. You just found um, this one. You just, just happened on it on all of your graphic novels. I, ha- I had a dream. I was having a dream and the title, The Nice House on the Lake, popped into my brain. And I was like, <laughs> I should I should write that. And luckily, I didn't have to write it because it was on Amazon. So I ordered it. Uh, no, this is one of Becca's uh, Rex from last episode that she was mm-hmm. raving at. Because uh, I've, I've got about six that you've mentioned that I really want to read, but I don't usually rush to buy them because I'm always like, I'll, I'll borrow it or something. But you had covid world so i went out and bought this one and i'm halfway through just today i started reading it and it is freaking rad i'm very into it because it's also end of the worldy weird setup with strangers in a house friends slash strangers uh and each kind of chapter or each what would have been each comic book uh starts with a different character and their kind Mm -hmm. of experience coming to this mysterious friend of theirs who's lured them to the house i won't go into it because you already did a good rap on it last week but it really is cool so far and so i am probably going to finish that tomorrow and um just wanted at least so people understand that sometimes just sometimes i actually listen I would be shocked (laughs) if this one does not end up as a TV show or something bigger. That that seems the format. If a format definitely lends itself to that. But it's it's also just, yeah, it's kind of visionary because it is showing you things in certain panels that you don't necessarily see done in comic books quite this Mm -hmm. way or like graphic novels that much. And I I really I'm I'm digging it so far. So thank you for that, Rick. Well, I'm going to follow that up with another one by the same author. So after I had read Something is Killing the Children, which led me to this one, along with Josh Pruitt's recommendation that I would totally dig Nice House on the Lake, all by James Tinian. Um, After that, I decided to read one of his from 2020, which I just finished yesterday, which is called Department of Truth. And so this Mm -hmm. is the same guy who wrote Nice House on the Lake and Something Killing the Children. So he's like, I'm just obsessing over all of his work right now. Um, This is conspiracy theory horror. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely loved this one. It just, I ended up reading this um, probably within the same like 36 hours because I started it on like one day. And this is while my kids had COVID last week and I couldn't leave the house where I started it one afternoon. And I finished it the next morning because anytime I found five minutes, I was reading it. So this is the first volume that I read, um, which again is a couple of the books put together. But the setup for this one is that this guy is working for the government and he starts getting interested in all of these different conspiracy theories that the government seems to be constantly combating. And he decides to attend a flat earth convention just to kind of see what exactly they are and why they would believe something so ludicrous. And while he is there, he gets approached by these um, kind of men in black, for a better way of putting it, who claim um, that since he's interested in conspiracy theories, he is being moved from the FBI and he now works for this division called the Department of Truth that is completely independent of the FBI, um, but they've existed for a very long time. And what he finds out is that the way that the world works is there is the truth. There is what actually happens. But if enough people believe in something, it is possible for collective belief to manifest something into reality. So the way that they- seems like a very dangerous concept right now. (laughs) It's so wild. And so the way that they explain it, they they take it kind of like from a very historical approach of if you believe that communists are infiltrating Hollywood, you're going to find communists in Hollywood because the entire American psyche believes that. If you believe- that Satanists are infecting our music and our daycares and everything else in the 1980s. Satanists 
will manifest themselves. Like it's going to be a thing. You can manifest things that do not exist just with collective psyche. And so what the job of the Department of Truth is, is to one, preserve the actual truth, to say there were no Satanists in the 1980s. It was all just public scare. But then addition to combat whatever they are manifesting, to take it down and then try to return people to normalcy, to their right mind and say, no, guys, there were no Satanists. Y'all were just being paranoid. That was mass hysteria. And then you created this thing with your mind. So right there, it sounds like such a dangerous, such a 2020 concept. Like this felt so timely because it was just all about if you believe there are monsters, you will find monsters there. Um, or if you believe it a certain way in your own brain, it becomes the truth. And if enough people believe it in full, that becomes the public truth. And does that make it true? And so this was fucking heady as shit to the point where I was like discussing this with my students. I was discussing this with other professors last week. Anybody who I spoke with last week heard my theories on the Department of Truth hmm. and truth versus reality. Because it basically is anything that you want, anything that you believe is real, if you can convince enough people it is real, it becomes real. And so this was fucking wild. Um, I read the entire first um, issue of this literally in like 36 hours. It was just mm. awful. Um, so this is from Image, and you can buy it in one of those beautiful volumes. And I highly recommend this one, um, especially if you kind of are fascinated by conspiracy theories to begin with. Like this is just... Q push to a horror story. Um, and it was just absolutely delicious to dive into. And gorgeous art throughout. Like, it was just captivating. That was The Department of Truth by James Tinian IV um, and also from Image. Cool. Yeah, well, this guy, he's going to get some love here. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward to finishing this one. Well, I did want to also remind people, uh, now that it's uh, out there in public, that in... I think mid-May will be the Fangoria Chainsaw Award uh -huh. and that they will be on Shutter like a proper show and you uh that will be uh we will be on there for a certain award. We cannot say yes. more than that. We cannot reveal more, but uh very cool to be involved in that and it was a very uh fun and fancy looking um award show. Yeah. I will briefly mention one more movie just because um I did watch it. It is a new release and this is All My Friends Hate Me. Okay. Um, yeah, that did look yeah. interesting. And, and I was, I watched the trailer for this and I was like, holy shit, this looks great. It is listed on Amazon as a horror comedy. And so I dove in. I will say, I struggle to call this a horror film. And I usually am the one who's like, I'm going to call everything a horror film. Yeah. Like it's slightly scary. It's got slight tension. There's a gun in it. I'm calling it horror. Yeah. I do not know if this is horror. So please, listeners, let me know your mm. thoughts on this one. Because this one definitely opened up some genre questions for me. Because it is listed under the horror section. Regardless, it is still super tense and super tight. This is a British film played Tribeca last year. I think Neon is doing the stateside distro for it. But the setup is that this guy named Pete, um, he was, you get the idea that he was kind of a douche in college. His friends were kind of assholes. They used to party all the time. They would play practical jokes on people. Um, they definitely made fun of people at the college that they didn't think were cool enough or as cool as them. Um, and 10 years have gone past. He hasn't really kept touch with these friends. He has kind of reformed himself, gone off, started doing missionary work. He volunteers, he helps kids. And that's kind of become his life is working as a volunteer doing good things. Out of nowhere, he gets this invite from them that says, hey, we've lost touch. 
it's your birthday and we miss you. So for your birthday, come out to the swanky mansion. We're going to throw you a hell of a birthday party for the weekend. And he's excited, but nervous. He hasn't seen these people in a long time. He just remembers it as like a party thing. And he was the leader of the party and he gets there and everything feels off. Like all of his friends are being an asshole to him. They're telling him stories that he does not even remember. Like, remember that time we went out to do this thing with that guy, you know, Lemon, that guy. And he's like, I have no memories of any of this. And he doesn't know what's going on. They all seem mad at him and they all seem to be fucking with him constantly, like constantly fucking with him to the point where he can't tell if they're being sincere or not. Additionally, They have also invited this weird guy that they met at a pub on the first night who he remembers from somewhere. Like he just keeps fixating on this guy, remembering him, but the guy does nothing but make fun of him. And he is certain that he knows this guy from somewhere before, not just random guy at a pub. This thing literally simmers for an hour and 20 minutes and then explodes in the last 10. Mm -hmm. Um, Very much about paranoia and and kind of, you know, self reflexivity, the way that we remember things versus the way that others do. Um, it's good. I don't know if it's a horror film, but I really enjoyed watching it. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was okay. definitely tight for the full hour and a half. And I think it was brisk, like 93 minutes. Yeah, no, I, I saw it pop up on Amazon and it looked like something I might like. So I'm glad you checked it out. Yeah, um, would you say like, it's not a comedy? Though. It's not like a dark comedy. It's it like, is definitely a dark comedy. Oh, it is dark comedy. Okay. It is. Comedy. It is. Because I mean, it's like a, a a Larry David level of mm. like paranoia and fucking with him where you never, you feel uncomfortable in every situation <laughs> um, to the point where it's humorous. And so, yeah, I would definitely call it a dark comedy. Okay. Well, that's uh, a wrap on our new stuff. Uh, yeah. When we come back in a moment, we are going to be counting down our top 10 remakes. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. So what is AG1? Uh, With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. 
Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right. And now we, I can't remember which movie it was. It was something we were talking about recently that put us down this rabbit hole. You said you were like, oh, we got to do remakes. What we was gotta it? We got to count remember? down remakes. I have, was it House of Wax? I know. Uh, I rewatched remember. 13 Ghosts a couple of shows ago. So I, it that something. might be it. I and mean, maybe um, it's just a bunch. I feel like a lot of those titles have been coming up recently. And so we probably were like, you know what? We should do a deeper dive. I rewatched House on Haunted Hill too. Yes. I think it might have been that. Ago. It might have mm-hmm. been that because that was a goodie. Um, anyway, we decided we would do uh, our countdown, our top 10 remakes. Obviously, you know, for the most part, these will be things that are probably more recently familiar. So we might be a little breezier on some of these yeah. uh, as we count them down. Uh, up top, before we do it, we always like to add, take something off the table because it's just too obvious. So we're taking off the thing and the fly as they are basically they're remake perfection. Like I would mm-hmm. say, uh, in my in both cases, I think they're both better than the originals personally, even though I do think the original thing's really cool. But The Thing and The Fly are both just incredible visionary films by their directors reinterpreting. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Like some, some of these remakes go in this like new visionary approach that's nothing like the original. Some are very much like the original, but change the time. And then sometimes there's like almost nothing in common between the two texts on a couple of these, you know, where they're real breaks from the subject source material, I guess. So I started my list by thinking like when I'm approaching remakes, my very first question is always, what are you doing that's different? Like, what are you doing? Why does this movie need to be remade? What is it about this story that you feel needs to be changed, altered, tweaked to push it into this contemporary environment? And that's kind of the very first thing that I look for. Because as I was making the list, I realized that there are some remakes where it's literally just like a cash grab. Like, oh my God, what movie was popular in 1984? Hey, can we reboot that? And then boom, you've made your money back. And reboots are always going to be a part of our society. I think I did a Nightmare University lecture on this where just how reboots and remakes are always going to be with us because it is easier to say, let's remake Nightmare on Elm Street, knowing that there's already a bankable commodity with Freddy and some people will just turn up just because it is that versus creating a whole new IP or concept. Well, and that's what you're saying. Sway people. The IP is the term here for like, you know, for people who are less interested in this stuff. Like it's not much different than the way Marvel movies are Mm -hmm. based on Marvel comics. We now live in a world where we have such a backlog of great horror titles from the past that people can just who own the rights can be like, oh, well, let's go back and bring that back. And because there's some familiarity with it, it's a a slightly safer financial bet. Exactly. So so some of these will prove that and some of these won't be successful in that way. Probably my biggest pet peeve. Um, and I might've even left a really, really good remake off my list because it was one of these, um, I hate the, 
the only reason we're doing this is because last year that movie came out and had subtitles. And so we're one year later or six right? months later doing the American version. That that pisses me off even when it's a great one. There's a case in point of a couple that are actually truly great, but they were made so close to really good originals. Mm-hmm. And then there's- Often with yeah. the same director. Yeah, like, yeah, The um, Vanishing had the same director for Christ's yeah. sake. You know? And then what pisses me off the most, and I know this isn't going to be on your list, so I'll talk about yeah. this now, was when it does become this, this did great in- Japan, South Korea, Thailand, wherever. Let's reboot it. But in that, it becomes this glossy version that completely misses the original Mm. point. And the two that I looked at immediately were Cairo, which was um, originally just this beautiful film about the despondency of being online, about depression, about feeling isolation in an internet world. Gets remade in a pulse. And I don't even know what that hot mess is. Um, And then I also looked at like, was something made in a particular time period, something like a lot of the Grindhouse movies that get rebooted, like Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw. And when they reboot it 30 years later, how do they um, kind of navigate the fact that that environment that it was made in, like originally like this very post-war gritty environment is no longer the case? And how do they navigate and, and deal with that? Yeah, that no, that's a big part of it, and um, some of them, the good ones, just you could keep redoing them forever, and as long as you adapt to your time period, it's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. The way the, I often say, the way zombies have been used forever yeah. is in that way. So we'll get into it. There'll there'll be some big omissions, I'm sure, between us because we both like to pick probably uh, some slightly odd choices here and there because these yeah. are definitely personal ones that we respond to, not the best ever because that's impossible um but let's just jump in and then we'll see what we missed at the end because there's a couple that i have a feeling are gonna miss that are actually pretty important ones yeah i have my how it goes you know my runner up are like the big major ones the ones that i put on my personal faith list are kind of the weird oddball ones but with that i will jump into my number 10 oh and by the way just for people remember before you start if you list one that is higher mine we will bump it till we bump it just so people know the bromley rule the Bromley rule. Okay. So on my number 10, I have Willard from 2003. You know what? I never actually watched it. I never Are saw it Willard. I have seen the original. I've never it's seen the new one. great. Oh okay. my gosh. Take it away. I, I really enjoyed this one. So this is directed by Glenn Morgan, who had really cut his teeth on X-Files. He's now an EP over at Monkey Paw, just did the new Twilight Zone remake. He directed this one. This stars Crispin Glover at like Crispin Glover that this is like the role he was born to do admittedly Mm. the kind of eccentric weirdo who just wants to be liked by everybody but can't not be himself and so he really connects to these these rats um and this movie i deeply enjoyed like i he connects with the audience he connects with the other people in this but at the same time and I don't even know how you do this. You feel uh, alliances in the rats because there's Ben um, versus the other rat. There's the rat that is the weakest, who is kind of the smartest of the bunch. But then there's also the rat who is the strongest, who can kind of chew through everything the mm. quickest. And so you feel this like alliance between the rats. You feel for the two rats. When when the rats get injured, you feel it. Like this movie made me feel things. Wait, does um, Crispin Glover wear a suit in this? Like a nice yeah. suit. Yeah. I feel like I did see this when it came out now, and I remember it being really slick and kind of good, but it's so long ago that I my brain can't like completely yeah, this place is, it. This yeah. is like 20 years ago now. Yeah. Um, but I rather enjoyed this. It was really quiet when it came out mm. um, and didn't get a lot of attention, but I definitely, this was kind of the 
Crispin Glover was just the perfect person to bring this back to life. I've seen the original Ben. I've seen the original yeah. Willard. Um, but yeah, this was well, great. You also bring up that's an interesting, like one other thing worthy of discussion is like the ones that remake saying that were, were kind of a small release back in the day. Mm-hmm. It's still IP, but it didn't really make a big hit or as a drive-in movie versus something that was a huge hit or successful. And mm-hmm. then you remake that. That's They're two very different things. I always love the idea of remaking things that, were just obscure and weird mm-hmm. um, and trying to make them, you know, a success versus when you're just remaking something that was already huge. Um, Those but, are much harder. Yeah. Like if you're like, I want to remake Messiah of evil. Right. Every studio's answer is what the fuck? Why? Yeah. Like why, yeah, yeah, why yeah. just make something similar and call it done. Um, so that will always be the case is it's so hard. Anything that does not have like a major name, like it's not a nightmare on Elm street. Like it's a hard sell. Well, and sometimes if you just merge two things, you have a whole mm-hmm. new thing. So for, yeah. for my remake, which is night beast on Elm street, which would be <laughs> just fancy. Just imagine like that music plays. And instead of Freddy night beast with his little gun, he's like chasing you down, shooting little rays at you. Come on. Who doesn't want to Is that your number nine? Did you night put beast your own movie? On <laughs> I got the assignment wrong. I made up movies for every one of these. Like I got cool, weird. <laughs> the mission. predator purge. This is where I'm going today. Uh, no, my, my number 10 is um the opposite. It's very loud, very fun. Uh, I think it's an utter blast when I start in theaters and I love the original. I always want to like give the context of the original, how I feel about the original. Uh, I love Joe Dante's original and I love Alexander Aja's Piranha 3D, which is nice. just too fun. I started in theaters. It's six. It's, it still has satire. It's so dumb that it's also smart. It's like one of those movies that goes so dumb at times, but then you can tell it's because it's actually smart. Um, it's sexy. Uh, it, it's surprisingly like in, in funny ways. Uh, Elizabeth Shue just owns the movie. Like she's just a kick ass local sheriff. I love her in it. Uh, Eli Roth gets his shit fucked up at one point, which is fun. You got a, a, a Jaws reference with Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, I, I just like the idea that it's about, um, you know, an earthquake that opens up this prehistoric kind of uh piranha piranha as it should be called um but but i love the original so this isn't I, I think again my favorite remakes are the ones that go okay we like the original too let's let's soup it up let's give it some new energy let's make it 3d and let's make it uh you know frats and sororities or partying kind of vibe but then let's also do something really smart with it so i to me this was just too fun to leave off i couldn't had to include it I watched this movie a couple of years ago and what I realized about it that I didn't realize at the first time is it's literally making fun of mid-2000s culture only like five years after mid-2000s culture because it is just making fun of that douchey Abercrombie and Fitch frat boy with the popped collar listening to Limp Biscuit, ogling women, just real masochistic society. Um, Just this machismo coming out constantly. Um, it's, It's literally kind of just amplifying that only five years after we kind of saw that culture at its peak and yeah, it's doing no, something really interesting in that. and making super gory and, and Jerry, mm-hmm. any use of Jerry O'Connell is always good use of Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> I, I think if you use Jerry O'Connell to play like someone who's douchey and funny, you cannot go wrong. He's always good in that. I thought he's yeah. very good in Chelsea's movie too. And that oh, kind of yeah. role. So I, I always enjoy uh, that presence, but yeah, I think this is a great film. Um, and this is 2010 Piranha 3d to get me started. So my number nine, I saw at Beyond Fest um, years. I think this may have been the very first Beyond Fest. Actually, that's how long ago it was. And I think I may have seen it with you. And this is The Town That Dreaded Sundown. 
Well, right before we, I, it's not on my list, but I thought about it. But I would need a rewatch because I've only seen it the one time. And mm-hmm. I remember it being interesting. But the reason it is interesting is before we started recording today, I was telling you how much I just was blown away by a film I missed on first release called Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Mm-hmm. And this is the director. Oh, shit. Yeah, so okay. This is what they went on to do. Yeah. So I loved the Town That Dreaded Sundown reboot. I've ended up watching it a couple other times since then. So this is Blumhouse back in 2014, so like 10 years ago now. I love this reboot because it's a meta reboot where it is rebooting, but at the same time, it's acknowledging the first film's existence, like that there was a killer who plagued this town in the 1950s, 60s, I don't know the history of Texarkana, then they made a movie about it, and then it is rebooting that movie as a movie about the original movie being made. And the town um, like celebrates by showing the movie every year. On a by showing screen. the movie. That's what I do yeah. remember that, yeah. And so it's a really fun approach for it. This is um, director Alfonso Gomez um, Rijan, who I did not know did Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. I know him from, um, he actually, I think, won an Emmy for American Horror Story Coven. Uh-huh. Um, like that was his season. And um, that's what definitely brought him to my attention. But yeah, this one, it's fun. I found this to be funny and amusing. And I mean, the 1976 film is kind of wacky and bonkers and out there and definitely holds a place in my heart. But I really found this reboot to be smart to a degree. So yeah, yeah I'm tempted if, to rewatch. I, if, I you're really gonna re- if you got to reboot something, do something interesting with it. I actually went did. to Texarkana like a couple of years back when I was going across, like it wasn't on the route, but I was like, I need to go to, I need to go to a place that is part Texas, part Arkansas. Did you do this like on your sweep up to like Wisconsin? It was one or? of them. It was one of the cross country, but I remember there's like an actual plaque saying this is Texas. This is Arkansas. It was really cool. I was like, Oh, that, that's pretty neat. Um, okay. My number nine is when I had seen when it came to theaters and I kept, when we, put this on our list. I was like, shit, I want to rewatch that because I remember it being really good. It was even better than I remembered. It's really fun. And that is The Crazies um, mm-hmm. from 2010 from Breck Eisner. I remember liking this one a lot. It was around the same time as the Dawn of the Dead one. And there's a lot of remakes happening at the time. And all I remembered was that Timothy Oliphant was in it. And he does mm-hmm. what Timothy Oliphant do best. And that's sheriffing. You could cast Timothy Oliphant <laughs> as a sheriff in anything. And the movie is watchable. The TV show is watchable. <laughs> Watch anything with him doing that, and this like this is probably the first one, and this no, uh, probably Deadwood is prior to this. I would so, think Deadwood, had yeah, probably, probably been by a couple of years, a yeah, yeah, probably point. for a couple of years. But but either way, this is I think he's done it five times since, so it's kind of amazing. But he's really just makes sense. And Rada Mitchell's his wife. Uh, this is uh, the remake of obviously of George Romero's one. But what I like about the Romero's is like kind of a messy, wild documentary realist version this is very mm-hmm. slick this is more like a feels more like a redo of us a us version of 28 days later in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um and what i love is the like slow build perfect american town uh starts on a baseball field little league and a man just walks out with a shotgun ready to like shoot someone and it's like oh shit so it feels kind of dangerous and he pulls a gun on on the sheriff and he's like obviously a normally a nice guy and there's something taking hold of him and the sheriff's forced to shoot him in front of all the town and all the kids and they're like what is going on in this town and they quickly realize that something is in the water they figure out there's a plane crash and it's crashed with something not good some sort of toxin and as the water's creeping down to different parts of the town people are turning into this the crazies like they're getting they're somewhat between zombies and maniacs but sometimes just odd behavior which makes mm-hmm. it more interesting um like the late lady you know riding a, a bike down the middle of the, uh, an empty street but uh so it starts like really it's i think the first 20 30 minutes are really solid really interesting and more smaller self-contained small town horror 
And then at the, around the 30 minute mark, it goes real big. And suddenly it's about, you know, the anti antiviral teams coming in and you have to try to escape them. And it's him, his deputy sheriff and his, and his wife, they're trying to survive these elements. And there's just some really gory, crazy, slick filmmaking going on here that this one, I like, I watched it a few nights ago and I was like, this is just as good as I thought in theaters and almost more fun to revisit now. So I think if somebody's looking for a really fun late night movie, this was really cool. I remember loving this and I have not seen it since it came out, but yeah, I remember yeah. having a really good time with it when it did. Yeah, no, hold so, on. My number eight, I suspect maybe higher. This is House of Wax from 2005. It's only a little bit. It's like one higher. So let's okay. just go. Let's okay. do it. Next. We'll hold. We'll hold. Okay. It's my no, number. No. It's my, no. it's the one after my next one. So no. okay, well, go ahead. So you give, you throw your number eight out. It won't take long. Um, okay. So my number eight is actually the only, this is a very interesting category. I've, I've talked about this movie on a um, deep cuts not long ago. And I saw it when it first came out and I've really grown to kind of love it. Um, but it's the only one on this list. And I imagine this would be the case with a lot of people actually, where I hadn't seen the original. I'd only seen the remake and that's very rare because usually we have. So we are talking about the toolbox murders by Toby Hooper from 2004, which every time I see it, I think it's a better and better movie and more, Mm -hmm. more fascinating because it's like, um, it's about Hollywood. You know, it's a Hollywood hotel and people who come to Hollywood, some disappear, some make it some don't. And it's, and just the way it's framed and it becomes a supernatural, it's got a supernatural element as well as a slasher element, which is really interesting. So, you know, come, trivia a week ago with the one you couldn't go to um there was a question that really pissed me off because uh toolbox murders the original has been at the top of my amazon queue for like a year and i keep going i gotta watch the original i can't believe i've never seen it it's just one of the very few of that subgenre i haven't seen and um mm-hmm. i must have seen the director's name on there 20 times and of course the question comes who directed the toolbox murders i'm just sitting there going oh i swear I, if i just pushed play i would have done this right um for anyone who is forced to know this, it's Dennis Donnelly. He only made this movie uh, from 1976. Um, and it's, you know, definitely a drive in, you know, uh, it, it's that quality of slasher, you know, from the time it's uh, it's interesting. So anyway, let me quickly talk about that because I watched it last night for the first time. Um, the, the 1978. The... Just 1976. Just real quick. I won't tell you too much. What I will say, it didn't really do much for me. I've got to be perfectly honest. I was excited mm-hmm. to watch it. The opening like 10 minutes is really good. It's it, really grisly. It's exactly what you would think from this movie, which is a very gr- a guy putting on a balaclava, going into a, ho- a motel complex and going from door to door to literally three or four different people. It just kept going because he kind of kills one person in a really brutal fashion, all woman, um, all by themselves. And he is just picking out different tools from this toolbox. It's exactly what you would think it is, but it's grisly and it kind of delivers on that. And then for the rest of the movie, which I thought the whole movie would just keep going in that vein. After that, it really becomes like a psychodrama. He takes one of the girls, um, abducts her and you realize pretty quickly that it's uh, Cameron Mitchell, who was a you know B actor and, and tons of Westerns and tons of horror films in, in this time period. And, he ends up you kind of revealing that he had lost his daughter in an accident and he wants her to be like his daughter. And he's, it's kind of becomes like a psychodrama and, and it might grow on me and I might watch it a few years from now and go, Oh, the drama is kind of interesting, but it wasn't what I wanted from that movie premise. The opening 10 minutes completely was. Um, but after that, I just found, I found it kind of dull, you know, personally. Um, so the, so Toby Hooper's is uh, n- not only is it nothing like that, it almost doesn't share a beat really, except for the, at some point, somebody's opening a toolkit and killing some people with some tools. Um, but what is interesting about us reading about it. And yes, the producer 
of the original. Uh, wait, no, the whoever the rights, somebody acquired the rights to it. She hated the original and she just thought it was complete misogyny. So she wanted to do something completely different if they were going to remake it. And that's the reason why it's such a big jumping off point. Um, well, and cleverly written by friends of ours, Jason yeah. Anderson and Adam Girosh. Yeah, um, no, it's a, it's a really fun, really clever script. And it's, I'm um, sharing moon zombies in the opening sequence mm-hmm. uh, at the cold open. And it's, it's a really good cold open. And it has more, if you're familiar with like those, yeah, I know you are, but if, if, if you're familiar with say the Polanski apartment movies, it mm-hmm. feels more like it's one of those. Yeah. It feels more like a horror film taking place in an apartment complex. There's a mystery. There's something supernatural about this apartment itself. Um, and, Angela Bettis is great in the lead here trying to figure it out. And you actually get like kind of an iconic villain monster thing by the end of it. Uh, a coffin baby, if you will. Uh, it's just, look, if you haven't seen it, it's way worth the track down. Uh, it's number eight right now. Honestly, it's one that keeps creeping up my list that, cause it's just kind of fun. It's nasty. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like Toby Hooper being letting his nasty out um, late Toby Hooper. So really like this one um, and glad it gave me an excuse to actually watch the original. Thankfully. Okay, well, now on to what was my number eight, but is your number seven, correct? That's right. Yes, yes, we can hit House of Wax. Yeah. Okay, so House of Wax, 2005 by Jume Collette, um, Sarah, who I did not realize until I looked it up today. I knew that he had done Orphan, but he did the Jungle Cruise movie that came out this oh. year that my kids love that I have probably watched 30 times now. And I think he does um, some of those Liam Neeson action ones, right? Like He might have done Taken or something like that. He's yeah. definitely done big movies like that. But I remember when House of Wax came out, I had just started working at Fangoria. This is like my very first year at Fangoria. And there was so much hatred on this movie. Like everybody just wanted to hate it because Paris Hilton was in it. Paris Hilton amplifying that 2005 culture I was just talking about of like girls with, you know, Frappa latte drinks, tiny purses and, you know, or sorry, uh, designer purses and tiny dogs um, on cell phones. It was very much kind of that Paris Hilton aesthetic. And I remember that just like that, that hatred, the vitriol just being thrown of it at Paris Hilton's in it. Well, fuck this. And um, it get, you know, slowly over time, you know, 20 some years now, I think that people have really started to come around to it because now when I talk to people, it's like, oh, yeah, House of Wax, that was fun. Like most people look back and remember it as being something fun. I loved this because it did something drastically different and it feels so unhinged. It feels like a tourist trap movie. Well, that, that's the one note to make here for anyone. Like it's closer to a tourist trap remake than it is House of Wax, even though it's House a House of, of Wax. Wax intellectual yeah. property. But it really feels like tourist trap too, which is, makes it even more fun. And I like you're saying about things that age well. T- we all know now, like, like practical people who go all out on practical effects their movies age so well. Like even if mm-hmm. this was unpopular, now people watch it and marvel. Like, how did you do this? They, they, they built a town. They built like all these practical dummy model wax things. It's, it's amazing. Off. It's like it's really gorgeous. cool. Yeah. Yeah. There is just so much in this movie that I now look at and go, oh my God, that was just all fucked up. And I love it so much so that like when I watch the new Texas Chainsaw movie on um, Netflix, immediately I'm like seeing notes. The town looks almost exactly like the House of Wax Town to the point where I assume that the filmmakers had to say, let's wink at it. Yeah. Um, And this is one, I rewatched this a couple of months ago and just had an absolute blast with it. It is just a trip. Yeah, I can't remember what it was for. Something we did that I watched. I feel like it was right around the same time I was watching 13 Ghosts, but, or maybe, yeah. I rewatched it for something and I can't remember. And I really enjoyed it. I think the first 30 minutes is like the typical 
teen movie at that time and it's a little painful with some of the Paris Hilton kind of references that but as soon as the horror starts and they get to the town it's kind of singular in its mm-hmm. effects and just it's and it's interesting it did really badly at the box office and ended up actually making its money and more back on home video it did really well so in the i was just read it, reading about today and, and cool cast alicia Cuthbert, mm-hmm. who i was talking about earlier she's in the the one i wanted you to watch tonight the seller um oh yeah jared padalecki and people like that so it's you know it's interesting but yeah cool i'm glad house of wax makes both our list that was my yeah. number seven your number eight which means we're now at your number Seven or seven? My number seven is yes, Suspiria okay. 2018. Ah, okay. I still feel like I need one more viewing. I only saw it once with you in the theater. I haven't seen it since. And I, I'm still processing a lot. So I still have um, the same issues that I had when we saw it in the theater, which was the length, which yeah. was if I have to go to the bathroom twice during a movie, right. it's too long. Yeah. Um, like, I, I, I will admit, like, I, I do, you know that's kind of like my kicking point is like, if I can't sit through it in one sitting, that's an issue. Um, new Batman film. And so with Suspiria 2018, this goes back to that question that I mentioned at the beginning is if you were going to do something, do something drastically different. And I will say that when they announced they were doing a Suspiria remake, I was one of the most knee jerk reaction people out there where I was immediately like, fuck no blasphemy. You can't touch this. The original is sacred work of art. You know, this is my my cinematic god of visual excess. You cannot touch this. Yeah. And I went into the remake really kind of expecting to hate it. And I ended up really appreciating what the director did because it is still the story. It is still kind of a reboot, but at the same time, it is everything opposite of the original. Instead of visual excess, it's an exercise in visual minimum. Everything is beige and khaki and um, body tones. Everything feels very controlled. Um, Whereas the original is all about isolation set in this very kind of rural dance school that is surrounded by woods. This is in the middle of the city. It's a very urban story. The first one is about the dancers. This one is more focused on the witches, actually. The witches seem to get a lot more play. Um, and it just, even the way that they're shot, it's, it just feels drastically different, yet somehow still just as violent and shocking. Like there's still just as many scenes that I'm like, holy fuck. Um, I really was not expecting to like this. And I ended up really, really enjoying it and enjoying the lead actress too. Oh yeah. She's um, great. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I'm curious to see it again. The parts that like didn't last, like the, the parts that I remember now are like her dancing and the person who's being thrown around the room being an amazing mm-hmm. scene. And then what happens when that you meet all the coven at the end, it's amazing. But the parts that didn't like really coven, land like or, oven. Uh, yeah. Coven, like coven. Oven. Uh, coven, like oven. Uh, no, it's the parts like that. Don't st- like the parts I have to rewatch are like when, like the kind of world war two references and to like mm-hmm. weird, like storylines where I think Tilda Swinton's like in a under makeup as a guy or something. I can't like there's parts that, that is, I can't fully remember, but they didn't yeah. land with me at the time. Cause I didn't, they just felt so like a different movie. Tilda Swinton plays like three different roles yeah. in the movie, possibly more. And there are moments that just seem to disconnect that I still don't necessarily get. Um, that the, uh, you know, kind of, I like short movie side of me is like, nope, it's fluff. I don't get it. Get it out of there. What does it have to do with our actual yeah. story? But I will definitely um, give it another spin for sure. Yeah. But I ended up kind of walking away with this and I found myself referencing it more than I ever would have expected to. So I definitely really appreciated what. And I think a lot of people are coming. It do seem to like younger people seem to dig it. So that's mm-hmm. always good too. Um, all right. My number six is from here on. They're all movies. I really dig. Um, 
number six is one that I just think is one of the best remakes uh, at making something just fucking balls to the wall. And that is the only person to make it twice on this list. Alexandra Aja, The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, I think this is a really good remake. Like, I mean, I mm-hmm. quite honestly prefer it by quite a lot to the original, and I'm a huge Wes Craven fan. I, I, there's stuff I like for sure about the original, but it, it is a little clunky at times. And this is just a really intense revision. I think it's because Wes Craven was also heavily involved in this remake, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Um, and picked a director coming off things like saying like high tension, where you bring that kind of intensity and energy it was the perfect choice i think and i wasn't sure if this one would hold up because i hadn't seen a long time and i watched it a couple years ago and i was pretty floored by it actually how well it held up and it's the same kind of thing you know they're they're having a wedding anniversary uh they have their kids with them they have a grandkid a new baby they're going through the desert and this one goes and they break down well they break down because they've been sabotaged by the family the clan uh out there and it's like what's cool about this one is it goes a bit more into the atomic mutations it soups everything up a lot more This one I loved because it went full political. Like, whereas the original, you definitely feel that like hippie versus, you know, big Earl, who's like the diehard um, warrior uh, military dude, Um, you know, the patriarch of the family versus the guy who believes we should put down arms in peace Um, because it is very much in this post-Vietnam era. This one gets very much into like the mutants are there because our government did this to them because they were first to live on radiated lands. And um, and so it just brings that political side in so much harder. And this is what I meant by like, if you've got if you're going to redo it, have a new message. This it took the old message, but it like souped it up so much and it souped up every element it souped up the violence it souped up the creature designs uh, are great and it's like got great i mean it's it's cool when you're like your hero character is ted levine who's like like the, the killer in silence of the lambs you know so it's like when you're For making Big ed the, i can't remember yeah. what his name was in this but one. he's great and he's great but when that's like your good guy it's like oh, okay this will be interesting if he's like the head of the family and then billy drago who's always creepy as hell as the, oh my god the head he of the family. So um mm-hmm. and vanessa it's just and it's a really good remake and it's one oh, and that would be big big bob big bob big bob carter big bob. Yeah. yeah yeah and i think he's maybe i can't i haven't seen it recently but i thought maybe he was conservative but then his like, then his kids aren't and so it's like you know it's a whole uh and then the youngest girl she just wants to be going partying and you know it, it, she wishes she had was on spring break somewhere and it's just it, i just i think this one really holds up well and crazy to think aja has two uh remakes in my top yeah. 10 here i am surprised myself Nailing them. Um, my number six, I have a feeling is going to be higher on your list. And this is Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. That would be higher on my list. I figured so. Okay. Do go on with your uh, number six, sir. But it actually, no, this would be my number five. So that's actually, but it's a perfect tee up because. Wait, my, that was my number six. Oh, you're right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We switched directions and reversed that. Oh, we did? Okay. So it's. Should we go to your number five or my number? No, go to your number five. Yeah. Uh, my number five tees up perfectly from that. And I had I, I thought it would be on this list, but I had to rewatch it two nights ago because I hadn't seen it in a while. And it was better than I remembered. And that is Body Snatchers. This is also my number five. So oh, I actually perfect. ranked this higher than the 1970s. Okay, so we'll get to that conversation <laughs> yeah. later. But, but this is the story that keeps giving. Jack Finney's uh, retelling. It's been remade now four times and a fifth is already yeah, being teed up ones on the way um being teed up but th- what's really interesting about this i hadn't seen this in a while and i always really rated it as hot great ferrera but watching it again i realize it's so my bag because it mixes like the sex death stuff in ways that is 
really disturbing at times yeah. and creepy. But um, if the credits, just for those people who might be on the fence, because you're thinking Abel Ferreira doing a, a kind of a slick studio movie. Uh, the story of this is by Larry Cohen. And the screenplay is by Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli. And then it's directed by Abel Ferrer. I mean, it's everything beautiful in the world. I know. It's like, and it was, I guess, from what I read, it was actually meant to be a Stuart Gordon film. And something happened in the studio, didn't pick him up the last time. they thought Abel Ferrer is going to handle it better. Much safer bet. Much safer bet. No, but this is, I can't believe that Abel Ferrer didn't go on to do a lot more studio work after this, just because this is so slick. What I love about this one is it's a teen story. It is very 90s in that capacity, whereas the 1978 one, which we'll talk about in a sec, is very much an adult story about adult problems. This is 1993 story of a teenager, um, the Environmental Protection Agency, government corruption, but it's all being viewed through this daughter of a military official. Um, And it's just a really interesting way to get kind of the, the backstory of what's going on, but from a teen perspective. Yeah. And that's Gabriel Anwar. She's really good. And and it's her mom is Meg Tilly. And I think one of the creepiest things I've ever, if so, if I was doing one of those hundred creepy moments, Meg Tilly's transformation there. I mean, it's literally like a, a boy comes downstairs to see his mom. She's in bed. He runs up to her body. And as she touches her, she basically, I think, She's she dissolves in his hands basically in a really grotesque way, and and in one fluid shot, it pans from that to the door opening and Meg Tilly standing completely naked. Yeah, and 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 you really feel it from the child's perspective why that's nude a nude woman in that moment is really disturbing because of how she doesn't care, and then she's I found that to be that whole sequence is just like textbook uh, how horror and sex are just so perfectly connected and child. Hood Freudian kind of perception. It, it really like watching it this time. I was like, "Oh, that's such a and just even and all doing it in one quick fluid take mm-hmm. made made the gag work so well." And make Tilly super creepy. She has a line in this where she goes, "Where are you going to go? Where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? Nowhere." And it's so creepy it's when she says, "So that. well delivered." Yeah, and so they're at a military base. This one's also on a military base for the reason, which makes a lot of sense because if the body snatchers were going to take over all the military bases, then how are we going to fight them off when they go wider? It's really smart, really. Very Larry Cohen in that way, like in, mm-hmm. in terms of that um, it's got Forrest Whitaker as one of the people at the base who I remembered him very well. Like for, I remember this from 93, like going, who is this actor is really intense. Um, and it's a dark movie. It's a very dark film. There's a handful of effect sequences that are up there with my favorites. And when we get to the a couple of films later in this list, it's like they're often there for these amazing transformation because these are like the pods are so creepy in this and the weird body dissolving and i remember a scene where one of the characters literally finds their own pod yeah well it Um, happens in the bathtub the one falls into the bath and it's horrifying so horrifying this this movie holds up so well well. like i can't recommend it enough it's not not very 90s in that 90s way it's got moments like that but because it's on a military base it has a kind of a different feel and it's pretty short Mm -hmm. it's like a 90 minute or 85 minute kind of movie and I just watched this one on Amazon and it's still creepy as hell. So highly, highly recommend Body Snatchers. Okay, so moving into number four, and I'm going to go with my number four, which is 2012's Maniac. I thought about rewatching this for this because I thought it might make like the lower part of my list, but I didn't rewatch it. So you tell us. This is pretty high on my damn list. I loved this one. Mm. It is so good and so creepy and so subtle. 
So my fear with kind of approaching any type of grindhouse film like this would always be that these were made in a very specific era that was trying to embody something very specific. And this is trying to embody kind of the gritty side of New York City, the idea of blending in, that you never know who is approaching you, that you can kind of subsist in your own world surrounded by people, but still kind of in your own space. And somehow this captures that beautifully. Elijah Wood is just absolutely amazing in this role, which is a hard role to do. Like the original Maniac is ridiculously well acted. Yeah. Um, it's just a hell of a performance. And he's like a totally different character, right? Like Joseph Mel's version is like they're not which again is smart remaking. It's like they couldn't find someone less like him in Elijah Wood. Yeah. And but somehow Elijah Wood captures, you know, kind of the same, I'll say, kineticness of it, Uh of haunting. Like, I'm fascinated by you because you look like a weirdo. But at the same time, you look really a lot like a weirdo in that kind of unhinged and and the passes, the passivity that Uh comes with it. Um, and I just, and it's got such an indie art flair to it as well. The opening sequence with Megan Duffy is just wonderful. Um, there's just, or I think she's the cold open. The cold open is the cold, She's definitely yeah. the, uh, from memory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, just Frank Calhoun, I mean, knocked it out with this one. I remember I was really pregnant watching this, um, and just absolutely, um, being enraptured by it and thinking, I remember seeing it in a theater and being consciously aware of, I'm not going to get to go to a theater for a while. Um, but just really thinking that this one, and it's got a great soundtrack. Yeah, the like, score is did, great drastically different stuff whereas the original is not is kind of gritty and dark this one's very electric and neon like it it does stuff you still get the mannequins you still get all the creepy stuff and it does not pull any punches with the gore this is heavily gored and had a big device right so most of it is shot from a lot of it is shot from the Mm -hmm. perspective point of view shot of the killer right which was mm-hmm. not in the original at all so that was yep. that was the part where if i watch it again i'll probably like that more than the first time because the first time you can never help with those kind of movies getting a little bit into the technical and like because you miss the reverse shot all the time you're yeah. seeing the emotion uh they do it in interesting ways from memory but yeah i need to that is definitely on my list to rewatch for sure um my number four is um horror sci-fi i love this movie even if it wasn't a horror list um and that is the omega man I am a huge film fan nice. of The Omega Man. I've, I've loved this one since I was a kid. Uh, this is one, kind of like what we were just talking about with Body Snatchers. This is one, two, three. There's three. Three. Yeah, you have Last Man Last on Earth. Last Man on Earth, Omega Man. Price, yeah. I am legend. I am legend. And I'm sure there will be another, well, now with the Will Smith stuff, maybe not another of that franchise. But I'm sure at some point there was, think, there was thinking of doing that. But anyway, this is from the uh, Richard Matheson I Am Legend story. And I saw this one first, obviously, like most people probably who... Uh, you know, unlike unless you're around for Last Man on Earth first, uh, this is like made me instantly a fan of Charlton Heston, and he's one of those guys who obviously there's lots of reasons to be like mixed on Heston. I feel like, but when I first saw this, I just thought he was the coolest dude because it's just opens. He's the only person on Earth apparently in Los Angeles, completely empty. He's a doctor. He just drives around shooting machine guns, watching Woodstock on film during yeah. the day, and just like pissing his time away playing chess, doing you know he, he, as far as he knows. 
he is the last person on Earth, and it will start to open up. We'll meet some other characters as it goes, but there's also these people calling nocturnal people who are all pale, almost like vampires, basically called the family, and they're real creepy. Uh, in, the, in this version, I think even more so because they're more like a cult in this mm-hmm. version than, say, more like vampire creatures in I Am Legend. Um, and Anthony Zerbe is the main one. He's super creepy. Um, but there's also an interesting romance, and I actually read something about it because you know, you'd never know how that stuff will impact you, but there was a interracial relationship in 71, which between him and Rosalind Cash, who's really good in this. And I was reading about it, and it was actually intentional because their thinking at the time was, even though this is unusual on screen at that moment, it hadn't happened that much. They were the writers were like, well, if there's if the Earth has been abandoned like that, people will stop seeing race, right? If you're if there's only a handful of people uh, left on a planet, people probably won't even think about that as they interact with each other, right? Because mm-hmm. it's such a superficial um, border between people. So I thought that was actually interesting that it wasn't just casting; it was actually no, it was part of the story in their mind. And I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, and it's it's just a really interesting movie, and I has it has a really cool, I think, twist to it. I don't want to re- reveal, but about um, you know, well, it's the I Am Legend of it, I guess. I'm yeah. not going to bring that up uh, in case somebody hasn't seen it. This is a really fun movie. Can't recommend it enough. I definitely prefer it to the other two, even though I do enjoy watching Price in the first version. He's fun to watch by himself, um, have conversations alone. He's pretty good at that. Yeah, I did not see this one first. I saw I Am Legend first. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so fun. yeah, and then after the hype of I Am Legend, I'd read the original I Am Legend story. Yeah. Um, years ago, I actually read that in like a college English course on Gothic literature and then, um, not Gothic. I was just probably like straight, like horror storytelling, but yeah, I, I'd read it in college and then I saw I am legend when it came out. And then that led me back to, um, price and Omega man. And I still, I, I had fun with the Will Smith version. I know it's really polarizing. But I rather liked that one, probably because I was living in New York while it was being filmed. So I saw all the behind the scenes stuff. I even went down and saw like when they did that massive bridge sequence. Um, I watched the whole thing be filmed. So I was pretty excited about it. I think but, people like us yeah. are mostly know it because we're like, well, you, did you know that Mr. Bungles, the voice of, is the screaming of scream? all the vampires? He's the scream, y'all. Everyone from our generation gets excited about that factoid about Mike Patton, who is the coolest. So He's like the scream in everything now. Yeah, um, so side note, I actually investigated having him scream in something. I won't say uh, what, but just something that I was working on. Um, how much his scream would cost. And let's just say I couldn't afford it. And all I was asking him to do was literally just scream. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, he gets, uh, Mr. Bungle gets a lot for his scream. That's fair. He's worked for that. Excellent. So are we on three? We are both on three. Okay. So my three evil dead remake 2013. My number three is evil dead remake 2013. Boom! Um, I think we, did we, we see this we, one together? We definitely okay. saw it together because there was a certain somebody we were meant to see it with who we didn't see it with. We won't go there. Oh uh, shit! I remember a certain that. massive celebrity yeah. that we almost took to this movie and they didn't come. Um, one of those moments you never forget in your life. Uh, that's everyone's going to be really mad at us for even talking that coded, but sorry. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's somebody you could possibly hear on my other podcast at some point. Um, he was supposed to come <laughs> hang out with us for the night back and in we... 2013. Before we showed I, up. He said hello in pajamas. And <laughs> but we got treated to the the. I still think it's. I think it's actually. If somebody said, "What's the best?" Like one of the just how to remake a movie. This is probably what I point them to in recent, like the last twenty years. I'd be like, "No, yeah. they did so many smart things." The fact that Raimi's involved. Number one, not having Ash. 
best thing they could yeah. have done. Not right? having Ash, yeah. nodding at the original. They still wink at it. They acknowledge yeah. its presence, but it's not the crux of it. It is truly a reboot trying to do something different. And it has more story in the sense of an addiction story, a rehab, an intervention. That's stuff that's pretty powerful and, and is enough to kind of quickly get your hooks into why they're there. And mm-hmm. the Jane Levy is fucking great she's my favorite of like any recent 20 year final girl type character her me i wish they would make more with her i I, maybe if the new one does well they'll bring her back at some point because she deserves you know more time because you know she's so good in this film and fetty is just such a good director uh that he goes all out yeah yeah man the blood oh my god handles special effects is just sick yeah um i mean like he he makes you feel every moment like i know we've talked before about the moment where the girl's head hits the toilet it is such just a quick moment where in any other horror film you wouldn't even feel that you'd be paying attention to like fingernails falling out or people getting stabbed or whatnot but in this it's just a girl hitting her head on the toilet and it's the most debilitating thing in the entire movie just the way that he films it and it's Um, and it pushes the violence pretty far and 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 it totally doesn't do it's not even he's not even attempting because he's such a different director he's not even trying to touch on the humor Mm -hmm. of Raimi he's like abandoned that humor because that is not the kind of filmmaker he is so now it's a different world and that alone makes this a very different evil dead and it doesn't take anything away from the others oh the blood rain to me that's the blood rain and beautiful sequence it is just so intense and I mean it's it's a fucking hell of a way to end the movie with just literal blood rain yeah this one will hold up better than almost any remake and and it's the kind of movie that somebody might not have even liked on first viewing because they were pissed off or something they'll watch it years later and they'll be like okay this is like an amazing movie sorry Mm -hmm. because it's just to me it's just one of the best so couldn't speak higher of evil dead yeah number three rockin let's see where we go we only got two spots left okay number two i know one of yours has to be what my number six was That is correct i'm going my number two this is kind of an odd one but i stand by it Satan's Slaves, 2017. Oh, okay, that is left field, but not not crazy. I haven't, I still haven't watched the one, the original version of that, but I know it was popular in that country. And Satan's Slaves is yeah. awesome, so take it away. Indonesia. So I watched the original 1980 version, which you can find on DVD. I believe from Severin put it out. Um, And it is, you can definitely see where the remake came from, but holy shit, they are football fields apart. Mm. Um, So the original, it's, it's a similar story about a family, a family member has passed away. Um, They realize after the person's death that the family has been cursed. And then it kind of goes about with the curse, but it's so different. Um, Satan Slaves 2017, this one came to shutter, kind of hit me out of nowhere. Um, Director Joko Anwar, who has gone on to really just kind of do a lot of horror in Indonesia. I feel like he's James Wan of Indonesia now. He's like, right. He's either directing or producing like all of these amazing horror films that we've been covering. Um, Queen of the Damned and Pedagore um, and just keeps turning them out. And I will basically watch anything he's even remotely involved in because of that. Um, But the setup of Satan Slaves, the reboot 2017, which you can watch on Shudder, is that um, this starlet dies and it is very much she was a singer. She used to have money. The family lives in kind of this lavish estate, but she's been really struggling financially for the past couple of years. And um, she has, you know, like, I think it's like four kids in there who are all kind of like there for her passing and they're, you know, kind of still living in the property. And it's a big family. But after she dies, people are still kind of feeling her presence around. 
And then it shifts and they start feeling something evil there. And what you find out is that she basically kind of sold her soul. And I can't remember if it was for her singing career or I think it was actually for to give birth to kids like she was barren mm. and if remember, she yeah. she sold her soul but part of the arrangement was that one of the kids have to die i'm fairly sure that was the setup um but regardless the whole family is cursed now and they know that you know something is there to kind of start killing them and it is just such a beautiful well done film at its core it's it's a ghost film i mean all those facts that i just laid down you know in the first 15 minutes of the movie and then it's just watching the haunting play out for the remaining like hour and a half but it is done so well and there are so many tense moments in yeah, this. it's like, like the I conjuring cannot... or something yeah. a little more surreal at times like the thing yeah. with the umbrella outside mm-hmm. it's it's a really creepy yeah i just this one didn't even cross my mind because i forgot it was a remake but it's a great movie i'm glad it made yeah. it Yeah, this is definitely like conjuring level of like orchestrating scares and maintaining the fear throughout. Um, So yeah, the 1980 one, it was very, it was fun. It was kind of funny at times. It explored more of, um, which actually made me research a lot of Indonesian history. Um, The original 1980s one is very uh, based in Muslim faith. And the family in it is Muslim. And so it's very much about Muslim practices and seeing how a curse works within that is a little bit different than this one. Hmm. Um, So it it was kind of interesting to see kind of how things had shifted over that time period, like the 30 year gap in between. Um, But both were good. But man, this 2017 one is is. I would never have expected anything like this to come out of that 1980s movie. I think both were like big hits in their country mm-hmm. like both at that time the first one yeah. originally was a big deal um very cool okay my number two uh is a i love i love this movie it's called the hair um and this is from 1988 it's a, a so it opens with a piece of kevin dylan's hair falling from space to earth and it's bright pink <laughs> higher for me uh what yeah oh it's higher the hair the hair is higher on yours okay the hair is higher. Uh, i will i will save it for one um but it's a great movie so we'll get there in one second okay so uh should we go well no we're going to your number one anyway go straight because this is my number one um so yeah I, in 1988, I wanted to make out with Kevin Dillon's hair. Not really, because I was like, I was like 10 years old at the time. Um, But give me a couple more years, and I totally wanted to make out with Kevin Dillon, but only if he had that hair. I was too busy making out with Shawnee Smith's hair, hair. uh, which is also hot (laughs) hair. And funny, we've talked about two sexy people, and the sexiest person in this whole movie is Tony Gardner. Easily, (laughs) Tony Gardner is bringing the sexiest filmmaking uh of special effects ever to put in a movie ever. outside of the thing this is my favorite special well i'll also say um he he is definitely um an amazing professor at usc now but mike fink who yeah. went on to like win academy awards for visual effects did the visual effects on this oh, cool. movie yeah. as well so the two things um, probably in conjunction yeah. are what we're sold by but they're both it's just like the best practical effects and the visual best. effects for this are just fucking next level like the way that they work in tandem um the blob the reason i love this movie so much enough to put it as my number one and your number two when you watch the original i'm sure it was scary at the time but watching it in the 1980s i remember when my mom had me watch it and i was like this is just silly it's like throwing people and it's just silly how do you take something that is basically when i was a kid i would have perceived it as like a massive mound of jello 
and make it terrifying enough that it could conquer an entire town enough that I will watch a movie and be utterly horrified by it. And somehow Chuck Russell did that in 1988. And it changed it. It's not just, oh, it crashed from um, outer space and it's an alien. This one, you find out that it's government warfare, that like we created this mm-hmm. as like a plague to take down other countries. Um, and that, like the crazies you know, in that way, the crazies, the yeah. new one is got a lot of this in it, too, because it's like a government thing that they made that goes mm-hmm. wrong. And yeah. And whereas the original is also very adult based, this pushes it far more into teen where, you know, you start with the the kind of homeless man who's poking it with a stick like you do. You know, anytime a meteor falls, you're going to yeah. poke it meteor with a shit. stick. Yeah. Um, meteor shit. Yeah. That's just what you do. But, um, you know, it quickly escalates to Kevin Dillon, who is the town outcast, who's all like, there's something out there, Sheriff. And he's like, no, there's not, you crazy, you yeah. know, <laughs> Oh, repute, whatever. I think whatever. you should keep going and with this. Keep going with thank that. Thank you. Yes, the whole, I'm <laughs> just going to act the out the whole. I want all, I'm do doing it. And, sh- and then Shawnee Smith comes in and she's like, I'm the cheerleader, <laughs> but I kind of think Kevin Dillon's sexy. And I'm going to stop. Okay, Candy Clark's yeah. the mom. She works as the waitress. Go. <laughs> I like her too. She's good. What? <laughs> I'm going to get pulled down a drain backwards. Oh, man. Yeah. That, okay, yeah, well, that's the other thing. It has a couple set pieces like that that are aren't amazing well when the blobs it's biggest it's obviously it's at its scariest at least scary rather because it's at its biggest and if people are fighting with guns but when it's coming out of a drain sucking a person or the phone booth gag which i think is amazing oh my god the person being pulled backwards like it's Uh, being pulled yeah no it's just an iconic car imagery even the scene where the um the homeless guy is trying to saw his own arm off to get it off. And it's literally like eating the saw while yeah. he's doing it. Like this movie, just how do you take something that's kind of a campy 1950s concept and put it into the 1980s teens and just push that gore and it worked. And one great voice really we worked. didn't talk about today. Chuck Russell does a great job directing Tony Gardner, but the story uh, this one's written by the great Frank Darabont. And oh. if you watch the, what's his, the, his version of the mist, is like a serious version of this, right? Like he's taken mm-hmm. that same kind of story, but giving you the really bleak, serious version of that Stephen King story. But anyway, I agree with you. It blobs up there. I mean, it's at my number two, but it's almost equal because I just love it so much and so much fun. Um, so I'll so rock- now we'll go yeah. to your number one, which yes. was my number six, which is 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, and this is so this is actually one of my favorite movies, not just favorite horror films, it's just like up there as one of my favorite. It's things like this and Don't Look Now. You've mentioned it twice, like this idea of adult horror. This is the mm-hmm. exact horror I miss most at this age, and it's the horror I most want to make and be in that world because I it, like the adult themes of uh, this is about relationships, uh, trust sex death uh your your I, I think this one's particularly clever because of its time period like you've got a bunch of people who are like kind of hippies and you're you're liberal mm-hmm. and then one day you wake up and this is happening in san francisco where this film is set and suddenly you blink and your best friend is now a stockbroker and that's what that generation did the hippies and the free love and then one day they were all fucking trading in reaganomics basically and i think that's at the core part of what this is about is you can't identify that person anymore. That person has now assimilated and that person has lost, but they do this in such a creepy, I mean, body snatchers is really creepy too, but this one does something that there's a couple of reveals here where this one's definitely less effects based, but the couple of times it does show you something. It's so chilling when you mm-hmm. see the reveal and, and it does, it makes you really care about a couple of these people. I think Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams have a really great 
relationship brewing in this movie and it's all the more kind of heartbreaking as the story goes uh, you get jeff goldblum leonard nimoy veronica carter like a really good cast really good location and it's treated so seriously it's mm-hmm. obviously post vietnam post uh you know it's uh nixon it's it's really about that kind of par- paranoia it feels more like an alan pecula type movie from that time period like clute or something but it just happens to be about a sci-fi uh you know genre film which is why i love it so much i love the sound design on this one um for a lot of reasons but of course for the scream i mean Mm -hmm. that is what everybody takes from this movie is just donald sutherland's face frozen as he screams and that piercing scream so uh, since i've mentioned it already I, I have a film coming up soon that we'll be releasing sometime soon um, that has I had to have a very distinctive monster scream for. And so that's what led me to examine Mike Patton's scream. And when I was looking for like comps, like I had to put in a comp sound while we were crafting it out. Um, I used this as one of like my first go-tos. I also used the shout, the scream from oh, the yeah, shout, yeah, which yeah. is really good. Really good yeah. um, but this was immediately like, I need something like that where it is just so shocking and piercing that it just, it haunts you. Yeah. It does something to you. Um, so whatever they did to craft out the scream in this, it's just amazing. And actually I have to give props to Abel Ferreira because his, the one that they do in that movie is great too. Yeah, no, it's look, I think this is the best in terms of horror, I think this is one of the best stories for to change each that that you can basically retrace for a different generation with different problems because it's it's just I mean like the original is still one of the best movies ever made. Then this remake is oh, like as good, and then Body Snatchers is almost as good, and then the Invasion wasn't very good. Uh, it just wasn't a very good movie. It was okay. It had mm-hmm. a couple of cool ideas to it, but it's the, I think you can trace this concept very much like I was saying with I feel like zombie films have a similar thing where if as long as you let them unfortunately now because of walking dead being around so long they haven't had a chance to disappear again which i think is a yeah. bit of a problem for them because it always helped that they would be very popular and then go away for they can't be a few years. Yeah. now it's, it's now it's just too popular cyclical. so yeah. hopefully it'll die soon and that walking dead will be over for a few years and something else and can, then we can have zombies yeah back. we can come up with a new version again but um speaking of that though very quickly our bigger mission here because i knew i had a feeling you weren't going to do it and i i knew i wasn't because i put the crazies on here Dawn. Yeah, Dawn of the Dead is a very, very good remake. Yes. The first 20 minutes is probably the best first 20 minutes of any of these. <laughs> like, like I think it's its own Absolutely. masterpiece. I think for me, the reason it doesn't end up making it is because the original Dawn of the Dead, I think is one of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. I don't care what genre it's in. It's just one of the best movies ever made. It's so freaking good that it's that's hard for me to get that excited about a remake, even a good Same. remake. <laughs> and it I is enjoy a good the original so much yeah. that I will always pick it over the remake, yeah. no matter how much I like the remake. Yeah. And the remake's Right. No, it's solid. Um, it's really solid. So I didn't I will... want to snub it. I just wanted to make sure we gave it some love there. And I definitely will give love um, to Invisible Man. That was another one that I was really It's almost too recent. And... It's like it's too yeah. recent for my brain, to, but it's great. Yeah, for sure. And so yeah. different. And then... So, so different. I, I think that, you know, we'll probably post a runner's up list on our Patreon, but I also needed to give love to some of the TV reboots because this I started thinking about while I was doing this. When TVs reboot something, it changes it drastically, but there are some of these like 
Hannibal or Bates Motel or even the yeah, Exorcist right. one, right, yeah. the Exorcist TV show from a couple of years ago. I fucking love. You're right. Um, a lot of those are really pushing the ideas into different directions that are really mm-hmm. bold. Like Hannibal is incredibly bold. Incredible. The direction that yeah. went in. And, and Bates Motel too. I didn't, I don't know if I finished it, but it was still really interesting. Um, no, no, that's a good, that's a good thing to bring up. There, there's one that I was just hoping would come on your list and i have a feeling it would be in my top five but it's been so long since i watched it that i felt like i, I if i didn't have time to fit in and i left off and that's cat people um cat people. yeah i need to see it one more time because like i saw it and always loved it i remember the sex but i don't remember the horror much that's all i remember yeah. is like the the weird yeah weird sex. incest sex so yeah. so i apologize that's the one where i i have a feeling it would be in my top 10 but i'm gonna have to do a rewatch i know it's getting a 4k release very soon so maybe i'll use so, that as my moment i have one of those as well well and that is the 2000s reboot a sorority row mm. um i, I saw it in the theater i don't like i didn't like it in the theater, but i was see, too old for it probably i don't i remember really liking it and yeah. now i i was scared to put it on because i was like i have not watched it since like that 2000s came out i know the original sorority row kind of bores me to tears um it is just not I, I never liked House on Sorority Row. I always I find it kind of dry. Wait, that's not um, the one with the weird clown thing at the end. Am I thinking? I'm going to have to look that up. No. Are you thinking about Horror High? No. Um, there's one that I really have grown to love, and I'm, I get a couple of the titles mixed Is it together. the one with the jester? It has something like that. At the okay, end. yeah. And they take, acid. they take acid at the end. I think it might be House on Sorority Row. Is that House on Sorority Row? Yeah, no, House on Sorority Row okay. is the one I love. I love this okay. one because it gets really weird at the end. Uh-huh. I maybe I need to rewatch the original too. I never really found the original to be that captivating, but I remember really liking the 2000s reboot when I saw it in the theater. And then when I saw it today, I was like, "Oh, I'll put that." Wait, I don't. No one else seems to like it. No, I haven't I see, seen you it recently enough what? to make a call. No, I didn't see. I didn't like it much in theaters, but that's when I was over all those kind of movies. I was like mm-hmm. bored by all of them. But I saw it on quite a few lists, so maybe it's gaining traction maybe you should watch that for a deep cuts rewatch i think i need to rewatch it because this is i remember just loving this when i saw it in theaters and being like that's how you do a remake and now i'm like i got no fucking frame of reference for it because it's been a stretch it's it's um, it's more straight like thriller mm-hmm. like they accidentally yeah. kill someone bury a body whereas house insert or they pray, play the prank on their house mistress or whatever they bury the body in the in the pool and then the last act somebody gives her like acid and she has this cr- and it turns out there's a weird guy who lives up in the attic it's it's a real the last 30 minutes is utterly bonkers of that movie i I love it it's a really weird movie um wow okay i'll rewatch they they start to because there's another one called fuck there's one that's that might be the one you're thinking of that is so dry and it's set in a sorority house or something house that drip blood house that drip blood dorm that drip blood blood. and that is the one that i'm thinking that one's really dull like it's that's the one where the guy he literally like the third act is he shows up and he's like hey did you know i'm the killer and he literally just announces it that is the one no yeah no that's that's what makes that makes way more sense i don't remember a clown and that's what's crazy about that movie is the next film by those filmmakers is the kindred which is awesome but the 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 house and sorority row is really oh no so not the the house the dorm that drip blood is really i think quite dull so so yes so maybe you might not have seen maybe you need a sorority row double feature that's what i'm feeling i'm feeling a double double 
They're nothing alike. I also wanted to give a little bit of love to Woman in Black, um, just uh, because yeah. I did really, and I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and it's heavily CG. Like I did not realize how CG it was on first watch. Like the whole anything that happens in it that's even remotely supernatural is heavily CG, um, and it does not hold up as well as I want it to. But having when I was doing my like binge of all of those cool BBC horrors from the nineteen seventies yeah. and eighties, I rewatched the original woman in black from i guess it was 1980 i think it was um, late yeah no that was yeah. next actually next on my list i've never seen and always wanted to and i finally got a copy it's of it good. recently and looks creepy yeah it's it's good um but then seeing this version of it like it was kind of a beautiful update um and and i liked what they did with it so i debated putting that on but again the cg it just did not hold up as well as yeah, I wanted there's tons to. and and the one i was talking about where it could be a masterpiece but it came out too soon was let me in because it's a let me in is brilliantly made by the Batman director. Um, I think it's like one of the best remakes, but because it came out a year after a movie I already had totally fallen in love with, it was hard to get excited about it, even though it's great. So time will tell which one people prefer. Yeah, but. I felt that way about Funny Games, where right. I fell in it's love a strange with exercise, Yeah, Funny Games, and then literally it gets remade like a year later just with, you know, English. And that one I have actors. issues with because even though he's technically doing the same movie and it's and it should be just as good, um, I think there's a sense of humor, a very dark, very fucked up sense of humor to the first one that's based on European manners, which is like, you know, knock on your door. Oh, excuse me. I'm going to come in. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm coming into your house. I'm being menacing, but apologizing. Like, that's funny when Americans do it. I can always just watch that scene play out. I'm like, yeah, somebody's just going to pull out a gun now and shoot you for coming into the house because the it's egg a scene different so world. Different. Yeah, they just yeah. don't work. And there's no humor mm-hmm. to those actors. So I do think there's a big difference between them. And, and you know, Naomi Watts is good, but it's just it doesn't work uh mm-hmm. for me i i'd be curious if somebody had, was unfamiliar with the original how they would have taken that film because it's pretty well made it's artistically yeah. it's it's well done but um anyway there's so many remakes but obviously now we're in a world where that is uh kind of the norm so yeah. uh hopefully we can turn you on to a few that you hadn't seen and or ones that you love to rewatch. Yeah. Um, so we will be taking a couple of shows off, probably close to two months, I'm guessing, off. Yeah. Um, during this time, um, Elric we'll and I are summer. both... We'll call it yeah, summer. We'll call is it also, summer. Oh, you might get pleasant surprises. We don't know. We might Yeah, we pull, think pull we might be uh, dropping some specials in here, some backlog of episodes, maybe some of our old Patreon shows. We'll see. We'll figure um, out how to do, just yeah. to just to keep something coming in the meanwhile. But we will be back with live episodes in probably two months. In the meantime, we do um, recommend checking out our Patreon show because for a whole $5 a month, you can get two more shows. You can get us talking about really weird shit or rewatches or things like that. Um, and, and you know, this last week we covered Cat 3 films. And yeah. Yeah, so that's where we do two or three random deep cuts that we watch every week. And I imagine now... Now, while we're off for a while, because it's just a lot harder to pull off our main show while we're both in totally different kind of spaces and doing different things. But to get together and just go, oh, well, I also saw two random things. And this is probably where we'll continue our whatever you're watching on TV and any new movies. Yeah. We'll probably get dumped there for the next l- little couple months. Yeah. But so our Patreon will be continuing during our downtime. So if you suddenly find yourself 
um, having colors withdrawal, just head over to our Patreon and you can definitely pick up two more episodes a month. But there. we promise we aren't slacking and it isn't because we're burnt out on doing the show. We are we are really trying to uh, be creative, make some stuff this summer, and hopefully we'll have updates as we go um, yeah. with all that. So it's uh, but we've you know, we've held on pretty well. I don't think we've missed a show in this since we relaunched back up. So we're doing pretty good. No, no, it's been pretty solid. So we haven't taken too much time off. So, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much. And we will talk to you soon. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Safa-Vamir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 